This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. And uh, top of the morning to you. Man alive, is it a great day. Tis the eve of Christmas Eve day. One more day, folks, and then I hate to keep bringing about, making it about me, but one more day, one more show, three more hours, and then I'm not going to think again. I will just continue to consume all of the food brought to my door. Are you, is it safe? It's safe. You sure? Oh, it's really cool. The neighbors are delivering. Oh, they're doing such a great job. Just a shout out to all the neighbors. <laughs> but it's all like cookies and keep the keep, Yeah, and... keep the food coming. This I've got four loaves of banana bread on my counter. Oh, it's good stuff. I love banana bread. Little variety, people. Can they coordinate better, do you think? Have you heard of zucchini bread? <laughs> this is exciting. This is my favorite... Uh, this is my favorite time of year, not the shopping part, but just the neighbors that you never see making a quick door stop to drop off the goods. My brother has people showing up, and he's like, who are you? They're yeah. like, Merry Christmas, and they run, they run around the block, and he's like, he's yeah. never seen these people. I have no idea. They had to actually like track them down to make sure. Oh, it's such good memories. We used to have a neighbor that was Filipino, and oh, they had good food. They'd bring food over every Christmas. And we love them. <sighs> Those are the days. But guess what we gave our neighbors? This kind of shows how shallow we are. What'd you do? I We gave them um, donuts, Krispy Kreme donuts. Really? A dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. Just the one set of neighbors? or No, like a ton of them. You just went and bought boxes and boxes hundred dollars worth of donuts. Wow! Not to brag, just passed them around. But we feel like if we could kill our neighbors one family at a time with these incredibly dangerous donuts. No, but they were great. My kids loved them. Yeah, slowly take control of the neighborhood. We could own the neighborhood. That's our goal. So, but it's like I mean, all these people do these incredible things, like. A spatula with a really neat phrase. <laughs> Stir up this holiday season. A spatula, and it has a bow, so it's festive. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> and I'm like, man, that thing costs a buck. Yeah. That's not even two Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> we got rich. It's the thought, Matt. It's, it's, it's totally the thought, thought that counts. No, it's it's great. I just wish. It wasn't a spatula? Well, when you're, when you're paying $100 for donuts, you're thinking, man, I'm a loser. This isn't a competition, Matt. No, I know. But you're treating it like it is. No, I feel like I got robbed. <laughs> it's not even a competition. You're like, step up. I don't even care about them. I'm like, why didn't we think this through? <laughs> we could have given people spatulas. Yeah. I could have given someone a wooden spoon and say, this is like the wood of the manger. <laughs> wow. Stir it up. <laughs> Happy holidays. And they'd all be like, that's brilliant. It's great. I got a new spoon. It's like he's an author. Yeah, so anyway, it's almost over. All the, all the gift giving's over. 
Now, here's the crunch. When we're done here, I immediately start to panic because now i got to figure out what on earth I'm buying everybody. Still have not gone shopping? No. Wow. I was really busy yesterday. You just I know, had to work. In the future, mm-hmm. day after Thanksgiving, yeah. you're just sitting around, just occupying space. I'm usually sleeping. Well, you can just grab a computer. Okay. Think of who you're needing to buy things for. Right. And just go click, 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 click. It shows up at your house. You're done. Wow. Yeah. That sounds easy. Just sat on my couch, did it twice. Once for my kid, once for my wife, all done. You're just buying two things? No, it's just two separate shopping What do you call that? Sprees. Blitzes? Yeah. You have a price and you just kind of uh, see, check my out problem, your shopping I know. cart. I don't know. I told you last time, I don't know unless I see it on a mannequin. Well, don't buy I'm very visual. Well, I know, but I don't know what else to get my wife. My wife has everything. I mean, everything she needs. Get her a, a, a spoon with a, a nifty holiday Christmas message. Oh, that's a great idea. There you go. Here's a spoon. Here's a wooden spoon. <laughs> you could you, even make it yourself. You could put little googly eyes on it and some pipe cleaners. It's a reindeer. little red nose. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. That's a great idea. By the way, we got to get to that. In fact, I wasn't going to do it till later, but I think it's the hottest news on the shelf right now. Um, did you know, you know Ru- Rudolph has a red nose? That's the story. Do you know why? To, to help Santa see in the fog. I saw the, sh- the cartoon. No. No? All right. That's, the, that's how they're selling it. Yeah. Well. But Rudolph has a nose so bright, right? That's the way the story goes, yes. But apparently, and Dartmouth has been studying this, Dartmouth College. They've been busy. Anthrop- Research. Anthropology professor says that while Arctic reindeer are at least among mammals, by the way, uniquely qualified to see ultraviolet light, which comes in handy when the sun is low on the horizon in the dark winter months. The reflective tissue, also known as tapetum lucidium, Thank you. in their eyes turns deep blue to help them see in the dark. So these, hmm. these reindeer are uniquely qualified and prepared to live up there. They have night vision. Yeah. The problem is the fog extinguishes... The hue, so they can't see. So Rudolph's glowing nose solves this conundrum hmm. because it it allows – it creates light that can kind of cut through the fog. Unfortunately, the red nose has other side effects because reindeer's noses are so vascular, a glowing one would likely cause excessive heat. So poor Rudolph – he could overheat. Hmm. It's imperative for children to provide high-calorie food to help Rudolph replenish his energy reserves. I agree. So you got to leave food out. Hmm. Or, you know, that's probably what food, fruitcake was made for. That is a high-calorie fruit. Very High-calorie, very dense. And you can just leave the block out. Just, I call it a block. You don't have to refrigerate it hmm. or anything. It just sort of festers. <laughs> In a Christmas way. Now, here's the other thing. Another hypothesis for why Rudolph has the red nose. This probably is more likely to be the real thing. Um, He's probably got an infected nose. It's infected. Yeah. Now, think about that. How infected does something have to be to give off its own light? That's pretty bad. I mean, I think everyone's experienced some infection where the the area turns red. Yeah, especially the nose. It might be a little warm or something. Uh But if it's a nose and it's giving off its own light, that is really infected. That 
that is like beyond antibiotic effective. He may need to have that cut off at some point. So it's either that it's you know he's you know he's been designed by God to create a red light to cut through the fog, or he's got an infection in his nose. I'm going with the latter. You're going with the infection? Yeah. That's kind of negative. I know, but I'm very... He, he can't just have a talent? No. A the, talent? It's more than a talent. The, the, the TV show that my son just watched says it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ability that he has. He's different than everybody else. Yeah. And that's okay. Let's just... I think in science, you should always go with the easier answer. It's probably more likely. Oh, it's an infection. Then. He's infected. Wow. I, mean, I don't want to be a downer, but so what can is there any solution, or do they yeah. just say it's an infection? Huh? No, what they need to do? hang some antibiotics, and but that would ruin Rudolph. No, you can't ruin Rudolph. No, you can just put a slow drip <laughs> <laughs> IV. <laughs> they just tuck it in a little bag on his back. Okay, I would wait till after Christmas. He's going to need it. Yeah, and I'd tell him to leave his nose alone. Don't mess with it. He's obviously maybe, got. Maybe put one of those cones around his neck. To... He's got hoof nose disease, <laughs> and he just needs to keep his little hoof out of his nose. Wow! Again, I am a doctor. Problem you, solved. You play one on the radio. Play one on the radio. And happy Festivus. Festivus for the rest of us. <laughs> I, you know, Festivus was first celebrated by Dan O'Keefe in 1966. Thank you, Dan. It didn't gain widespread popularity until his son, Daniel O'Keefe, a writer on the TV sitcom Seinfeld, <laughs> used it as a joke in 1997. Festivus encourages the celebration of the festive season without the commercial overtones typically associated with Christmas. And it has feats of strength, mm-hmm. which would be kind of a, a fun thing to do tomorrow when you're just sort of you know bumping around, you have your kids around, just... Put them out there with physical challenges. See, throw stuff at them. <laughs> There's, um, you know, how you celebrate because you don't want to like get all caught up in all of the commercial stuff. You celebrate by getting a plain aluminum pole <laughs> yeah. and placing it, you know, in your living room as a traditional tree. So it's it's a pole, a Festivus pole, mm-hmm. <laughs> and labeling common and perfectly normal events as Festivus miracles. Like the mere fact that we're doing a show today, a Festivus miracle. It's a miracle. Yes, we did one yesterday, but today's is different. Today we got a great show. Uh, it's a miracle. We are going to be talking to a retired brigadier general, holy cow, Peter Zwack, about ISIS. He wrote a wonderful article about what we're really supposed to do to win this war. We're going to have a retired brigadier general talking about how to win the war on ISIS. Pretty complicated thing, but it's cool. So we'll get to him in just a few minutes. Again, a Festivus miracle. Another Festivus miracle is the fact that Terry South's here with the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the world? Thanks, Matt. Senator Ted Cruz launched a, a quote, emergency appeal seeking to raise $1 million and $24 million in 24 hours in response to the Washington Post online editorial cartoon depicting his two young daughters as dancing monkeys. The Republican presidential candidate also criticized the paper for its tasteless attack on his children. My daughters are not fair game, he wrote in a fundraising email sent late Tuesday. I'm sickened. I, I knew I'd be facing attacks from day one of my campaign, but I never expected anything like this. Ted Cruz is showing well in many polls and feels that 
a two-man race would be good for America. No, I did think it was interesting that, that Donald Trump said a couple of days ago that he thinks this race will come down to him and me. Uh, I think Donald may, may well be right. I, I think it, he could easily end up being a two-man race uh, between Donald Trump and me. Uh, and, and I think that presents a, a good choice to the American people. In a new CNN pullout this morning, Cruz up to 18% support, but still trails Donald Trump by 20 points. So let me get this straight. Go ahead. So Cruz is upset yes. that the Washington Post made a, car- a caricature, a, a cartoon about his daughters. Yes. But he used his daughters in a commercial. They And you're, and it's hands off. You're not supposed to mess with the candidate's daughter, right? I mean, just don't Correct. talk about her. Don't put her in anything. Yeah. And it's so, ima- it's so enraged him. By the way, Washington Post has since pulled the cartoon and any tweets about it. They pulled everything. Yes. And apologized, basically. But he's so mad that it happened that he's now going to use his daughters to raise money. I wasn't going to point that out, but yes. Okay. Just wanted to keep it clear. And we're down, we, you know, he, and, and, and he's also for a two man race. And the cartoon was supposed to be kind of a commentary on all of that. Yeah. That we're using children to kind of... But hands off but the don't, children. Hands off the children, even though they're being used in the political right. sphere, hands off. Mm-hmm. But okay. either way, yeah. he's gaining ground and him. he thinks it's great if him and Trump are the two-man two race. race. Fox Business Network released criteria for its upcoming Republican debate, and it turns out only six candidates might qualify for the main event. Yay! According to a network statement based on the five most recent polls recognized by Fox, candidates must either place in the top six nationally place in the top five in Iowa, or place in the top five in New Hampshire. Political calculates that this means that the January 14th debate will only include Trump, Cruz, Rubio, Carson, Bush, and Christie. All other candidates will be regulated or rele- relegated excuse me, to the earlier undercard debate so long as they achieve at least 1% polling in a recent national poll. Hmm. Maybe the undercard debate needs to take place like in the middle of the night. Or not take place. Or take place when the Democrats run it on Christmas Eve or Saturday night when no one's watching. You could do that, too. Okay. The woman accused of crashing a car into a crowd on a Las Vegas Strip sidewalk, killing one person, injuring dozens of others, was charged with murder Tuesday. Lakeisha in Holloway, 24, faces one count of murder with use of a deadly weapon and the death of, of a 32-year-old Arizona woman. The Oregon native is due for her first court appearance today and additional charges are expected as the investigation continues. Kentucky's Republican Governor Matt Belvin has ordered that the state prepare marriage licenses without the names of county clerks in an effort to protect religious beliefs like those of Kim Davis, the clerk who infamously refused to issue licenses to same-sex couples despite a Supreme Court decision legalizing such unions. That's what she wanted. Probably that's made sense for that state. They yeah. went ahead and did that. So that's good. By the way, all the states could make it easier by just doing that. They could do that too. A fireball spotted over Arizona, California, and Nevada Tuesday night. Wow. Did you hear about this? I saw it, yeah. Pictures everywhere? I saw it myself. Many speculated that it was a UFO or a secret military aircraft yeah, or maybe it? Santa Claus on a pre-Christmas <gasps> test run. Rudolph. Major infection. But it turns out the debris was from a Russian rocket re-entering the atmosphere. This from the U.S. military. Ugh. So you know they're going to hide Santa Claus. They're right. Not, they're not going to tell you it was Santa. They're going to say it was a Russian Anti-Santites. Social media users also uh, posted photos and videos of the fireball, which some believe was a meteor breaking apart or satellite debris. Turned out it was a rocket. Um, a couple weeks, was a month ago, there across the southwest, there was a big flash fireball, and ah. it was a uh, 
a, a missile being fired from a submarine. They were testing it oh, out in cool. the ocean, and uh, it uh, caused a lot of concern I bet as it, it flew across the sky in the middle of the night. You're not used to a missile flying out of a no. submarine. Hey, let's really quickly go check in on the White House. Um, there, uh, let's go find out what President Obama is up to. You know, during the holiday season, you don't hear as much from him, but let's just go see what his press secretary says. It's on hold, I think. Is he on hold? Okay. Hmm. Hmm. <sighs> Sounds official. We'll, we'll come back. We'll come back. See if the president's got anything going on, trying to hold down the fort. Anyway, it's hard. It's hard to be president. Lucky guy gets to be in Hawaii to do his business. We'll get back to him, see if there's anything going on. When we come back, folks, we're going to be speaking with Brigadier General Peter Zwack and uh, be talking about a wonderful article um, that's, that I think gives a lot of insight into what we should be doing about ISIS. So not a politician, folks, a, a Brigadier General, a former U.S. military intelligence officer and a visiting scholar at Georgetown University. We're going to get the straight uh, the straight shot here on what we should be doing with ISIS. We always hear it's a complicated issue. We'll let the general tell us what we really ought to be doing. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, our guest today is General Peter Zwack, and he uh, he is a brigadier general, retired, um, with experience in military intelligence, and he's here to help us shed some light on uh, the recent ISIS attacks, what is to come, and how we as a nation should respond to this great threat. General Zwack started, uh, had an, wrote an article in the Huffington Post titled, With Paris, ISIS Has Declared War on Us. Here's how we should respond. The ISIS attack in Paris, he says, was an attack on our global community. This will not end. We have to face this fact. As much as we abhor the idea of the ground action in the Middle East, this is going to take a concerted long-term international military and civil action. General Zwack joins us now um, today to talk to us about how best to be responding to this threat. Uh, General Brigadier General uh, Peter Zwack, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, a real pleasure. Good morning. Honored to have you, and thank you so much for your many, many years of service. Thank you. Uh, here's the deal, and, and enlighten us, General, because it's this is this is complicated. And then we hear politicians just throwing out kind of one-liners. Um, but when we get into it, and I got into your article, I thought, wow, this really is going to take a lot more than just boots on the ground. Or just you know Moscow coming in and helping or hindering, Ta- teach us what. What do you think really is the solution to ISIS? How do we go about truly dealing with it? Um, yes, uh, Matt. I think first of all we have to stop for a moment, take a deep breath, and look where we want to be ten to fifteen years from now. Yes, we can go in and bomb towns and villages and back into the Stone Age. 
But in the end, um, what effect long term is going to do for that? If we want to so-called dry up this malignant swamp that ISIS has created in that region, primarily among Sunnis, we've got to create the opportunity for what we would call credible governance. And that might not necessarily be how we define democracy, but what works in these places um, and, and create an environment where, where the sort of young seizing uh, the youth, unemployed, uh, you've got these sort of malign imams out there, you've got all kinds of, 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 of negative influences, you definitely have a problem with the Assad regime, uh, you've got corruption, you have all these things that, that, that get in the way of whatever we would define credible governance. Um, and, and that's not going to take a year or two. Hmm. If there's anything we learned in Afghanistan and Iraq, this will be a decade or longer endeavor. It has to be multinational. It has to be led with primarily an Arab and even Sunni face. And they're going to need to be Western uh, enablers, but not the forward face of such. And, and what's great, you, so your concept, and I guess it's pretty much the, the, the necessary concept, is credible governance. We're not in there to inject a democracy and, and you know, and create a, a government. We need a, a government that represents our government. We need to let them do what works in their world. They need they – need and the, the, the people out there, more than anything else, want security, stability, what you would call uh, judicial fairness at the local level, uh, and, and, and a living, hmm. um, and, and fair representation. Um, um, these, this is what we've learned the hard way, both in uh, Afghanistan, and continue to learn, and also in Iraq. And when those things go away, the region goes into free fall, and also this, this gives strength to the splinter, the, 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 the radical imams and, and the extremism that then leaves these areas because of the awful conflict and exports into uh, our country and, and allies and regional, the, and the terrible refugee, if you will, uh, flood. Mm. One million refugees into Europe already, and which is why this is really an international or a world effort, right? I mean, this is, this is impacting everyone now. This is absolutely an international world effort. We in the West, United States, we have to be careful how we how we involve ourselves, because there is this narrative among the extremists that we are, you know, we're sort of the revanchist crusaders, and, and we've, got to, uh, we've got to legitimately ensure that, that, that however we define moderate Sunnis, um, Arabs mostly, are in the front of this and end up being part of any long-term hold Strategy, because when you when you go in and you and you go in and seize ground and and then leave, that could be seen as a punitive expedition. You have to go in, hold, bring in uh, bring in uh, NGOs and United Nations and regional affiliates and and create those economic conditions and the, that 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 start to allow for moderate, hmm. if you will, local politics. It seems like, and I think you bring this up, the Sunnis, for example, might be playing both sides of the game. Is that true? Very, yes, it's troubling. I mean, it, it's, it's troubling, and, and, and this gets at the complexity 
of the region. I mean, there are countries in the region that in a linear fashion, yeah, we would like stability uh, in Syria, but we hate Assad, all right? And sort of the Alawis, sort of a a Shia offsuit. Uh, uh, You've got Iran in there. So all of a sudden you have, have, if you will, a a quasi-budding sectarian Sunni-Shia civil war going on. And then you have, of course, as part of that, you have the, 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 the conflict in Yemen and the Saudis and the Houthis that are, surround, that are supported by Iran. Um, and, and, and so it, it, it really, really is complicated. And when Russia entered the region, uh, as I say, sharp elbowed, uh, with sharp elbows in September, end of September, uh, I'm not sure they fully understood which surprised me just how complicated this is going to be also for them. But you, we've got to understand they also have a growing Sunni extremist problem that we've read about you know, heavily in Chechnya and currently in, in Dagestan and also in those parts of Russia that, that border the Caucasus and Central Asia, which is paradoxically why they now support the U.S. and others in camping down and keeping, if you will, assisting to keep um, uh, a a mainstream Afghan government in Uh, place. In fact, you're the perfect person, General, because um, you were were a former U.S. senior defense official and attache to the Russian Federation. So it, it, it seemed really strange to me that Russia would inject itself so strongly when the Americans were doing everything they could seemingly to kind of get out of it or minimize their role in it. And then, you know, with the, the shooting down of the plane by the Jordanians, the Russian plane, um, is, 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 is I guess at some point we have to figure out a way to work better with Moscow on ISIS, don't we? Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I fully concur. Um, we and and, um, and and this is going to be hard. We have to understand the reasons why Russia made really quite a gambit, quite a risky uh, uh, operation uh, at the end of September. But we've got to remember that the Russians um, have been in the region, especially in Syria, since 1970-71 when they were supporting Hafez Assad. And then they were thrown out in 1972 in Egypt. So really, since the Cold War, uh, Syria, with its base in Tardis, is the only, if you will, external base outside of the former Soviet Union where, if you will, they have a lodgment and interests. So one, they're bailing out or supporting an ally. And in September, we were reading that the Assad regime was on life support was in serious trouble. So they go in, first and foremost, to prop them. Yes, there's an aspect of showing the world and us, the U.S., that, yeah, there's a power vacuum and our words are hollow, and there's a bit of poking us in the eye on that. But that is, I believe, secondary. Um, and then thirdly, uh, they're, 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 um, they also have an absolute concern, deep concern, and we heard it in Moscow constantly, and I believe it, about extremist Sunni Islam. They believe if that Ba'athist regime collapses, 
that it is the furies from such are going to spread in the region mm. to include the Russian Federation and all the problems. So there are many reasons. That's why they got they in. Went. Yeah. And, it, it, how do we how do we deal with them? I mean, other than the Trump uh, Putin love fest that's going on right now in the news, um, it, it doesn't seem like we have a great relationship with Russia. So how do we bl- how do we bridge that? Well, we have to continue to work at it. First of all, uh, whether we agree or not, we need to dialogue at multiple levels, both in uh, in uh, both uh, politically and our military leaders need to be talking more um, because this, Russia is a nuclear tip nation, and um, we can't allow an instant or 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 accident in that region when we start talking about no fly zones and all of that yeah. god forbid you get another encounter that involves a nato got a, a u.s aircraft and a russian aircraft oh yeah and inadvertently ends up shooting they've also introduced um the uh, s-400 um if you will air defense weapon which is a a, a regional if you will game changer that thing can reach out 150, 200 miles deep into Turkey, deep south in the Lebanon and northern Israel in the area, and come. And those missiles can come quickly and knock something down. They also got S 300s you read about in the Moskva, mm. offshore in the Levant, in the Mediterranean. So the place there's probably nowhere in the world right now um, um, where there is more hyper tense, nervous military stuff flying and sailing around. And this is also where NATO now touches Russia through Turkey. Mm. And that is a very, very, very right now tense. Um, uh, there's a lot of pride going on with both those very, 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 if you will, proud countries that have a long history of, of, uh, of animus, though in the last 30 years up until recently, their relations had been better, especially in the trade and economic side. Yeah. It, oh, wow. See, the complexity of this is it's just unreal. Again, we're speaking with General uh, Brigadier General Peter Zwack, um, who is retired and is currently a visiting scholar at Georgetown University, former U.S. Senior, uh, US military intelligence officer. And uh, he's he's just doing what he can to educate us all on the complexity of what's going on with ISIS. It's not as easy as just saying defeat ISIS. Um, and it's not as easy as just putting, uh, you know, boots on the ground. We'll take a break. We'll come back, continue the discussion with uh, the great general. And when we come back, uh, I want to ask him more about how do we build the global force? What about boots on the ground? And uh, what's the impact of some of the rhetoric going around in the United States? Is it feeding? Is it fostering ISIS? Uh, We'll hear from the good general on that. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with our political candidates all the time, you'll hear them giving these incredible solutions for how to handle ISIS. Just go in there and stop them. (sighs) But you know what? Much more complicated than that. And uh, we've asked uh, retired Brigadier General Peter Zwack to join us. 
He is um, a former U.S. senior defense official and attache to the Russian Federation, former U.S. military intelligence officer, and visiting scholar at Georgetown University. He also um, is the author of uh, a, an article in the Huffington Post titled, uh, With Paris, ISIS has declared a war on us. Here's how we should respond. Uh, retired General Brigadier General Peter Zwack, welcome back to the show, and thanks for your time today. No, uh, great. I'm right here. We we love having you teaching us about uh, about the complexity of all of this. One of the things that I, I noticed in the news today, and it seems like it might be a sign of success, um, is in in uh, Iraq and the 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 retaking, I guess, of the city of Ramadi with by Iraqi troops. It seems like for that's a that's a good example of being able to you know, I guess, reinforce the locals to do their own fighting. Uh, that's right. In the end, uh, for uh, Iraq or, or even uh, Syria, ideally, eventually with a uh, regime that has evolved into something beyond Assad, um, it's got to be the, the, the home team has to lead the fight and has to credibly lead the fight. And as allies, uh, we certainly can be there with advice, with enablers, with logistics. But in the end, it can't be U.S., Western, and other forces being the principal face when we, are, when we have succeeded at something and become the hold force, meaning the, the, the security force within all the, all the uh, non-military stuff, humanitarian and aid and, and everything else come on top. So and that's why it's so important that the Iraqis, uh, um, with, with some support, um, uh, seem to be um, um, having at least in the near term a successful counteroffensive. Are, are we in a better position today, I guess, post-Paris? Uh, because it seems like all of a sudden Moscow's now involved, who hadn't been f- for years, I guess, overtly. Um, but China even expressed, uh, you know, tension against ISIS that something needed to happen. So I- are we in a better position than we've ever been globally to create that global coalition? I think that, well, I, I think that we are still very much at a pivot point. Um, what we do know, based on Paris and recent discussions in Moscow, is that there may be some agreement on the future of, of eventual future of President Assad, but that that but the but they are possibly going to come up with some type of arrangement where something can be done in coordination. Um, um, uh, with the Russians, uh, realizing that that regime must change, but 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 not making it, if you will, the the showstopper right up front. So there is some some very important nuances going on here. Uh, Russia is heavily involved, and they are also, I would submit, in a very challenging position because by intervening, that. Therein, a lot of Russian pride and prestige, mm. starting with Vladimir Putin himself. They can't leave now until the fate, one way or another, of the ex- existence, if you will, of the Syrian regime um, um, remains in place. And remember when we talk about the Shias there, 
oh, there are also Christians there, and, 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 and the Russians talk about that heavily through their, their, you know, their Orthodox Christian side as well. Hmm. I mean, so that, that really is, it's, they're not just in, but also in with Russia is their, their ego, their, their identity, their, their need to succeed. Yeah. I mean, now all of the, yeah, you don't, you don't necessarily think of it that way, but yeah, I mean, I guess you could see that with the Turkish plane shooting them down. Um, and, and I mean, little accidents like that could create, like you were saying earlier, some major, major problems. Another problem seems like uh, the Kurds um, and the need – the Kurds seem like this wandering group that is really not liked by anybody. Do they need their own country? What's – I mean, it's yeah. – talk about that. Yeah, in a perfect world – in my mind, the Kurds have earned themselves a a country. They are they are they are reasonably self sufficient. They are proud. They have a strong sense of national identity. The problem is is, is that they are in bits and pieces of Syria, I- Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. Right. And while and while it sounds good. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think any time. I mean, these Turks have just been battling the PKK in Turkey recently, and we hear about you know the cross-border clashes with with the Kurds in Iraq and Syria involving. So this is really hard. But somewhere as a beacon, I think should be a light, a lantern that if we could somehow regionally get through all this, maybe some super super on steroids Dayton conference or something or a new version of Sykes P I don't know. Yeah. That 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 Syrian excuse me, the Kurdish statehood is is created perhaps out of uh out of uh broken Syria and, and Iraq. Unfortunately I don't see the Turks being on board anytime soon, hmm. which um which is uh, uh, uh on um which is uh difficult. And so, so because because that that dynamic continues to to I guess irritate in the region. I mean, these are tribal issues f- that have gone on thousands of years. Are we? Do we actually think we could change that? No, I, I think it's a great question. I, it has to be done again. It has to be first and foremost regional. But there's got to be a mechanism that gets everybody in the room non-kinetically, meaning not shooting each other and trying to solve this. Um, it may be uh, too hard, um, but, but clearly there's, uh, there's always going to be a Kurdish challenge while you have stateless people in four different countries that feel some type of national identity, though even within the Kurdish movement, there are many factions and, 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 and they also occasionally will, 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 will fight each other. Hmm. It's very complicated. But without figuring a way out for the Kurds, this area is going to remain in constant conflict, at least on the corners, the borders of these, uh, these weakened countries. And I guess, too, so, and without some movement on Assad, as you were saying, um, the refugees aren't going to – the people aren't going to feel safe. So we'll continue to see a refugee movement as well, right? Yeah, I think that um, you know, as, as long as the Assad regime is is um, um, you know fighting uh, heavy-handedly, if you will, against the various um, uh, insurgent groups um, um, and a lot of people being killed, um, uh, this is going to continue. I think that Assad 
has lost legitimacy for the large proportion of his country and regionally. But to, 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 to be able to work some type of arrangement with any follow-on Baathist regime or the Russians, there's got to be a way where this can be sorted out with face. Hmm. And that's going to be very, very hard. Yeah, with face. The, face. Yeah, that's and, – and talk about – like we always hear um, President Obama's red line with Syria and he then didn't stick to it. Um, was Was that just – was that a mistake that has caused a lot of this, or did that just delay the reality of what's now happening? Well, I think I think that um, I think they probably the administration would have wished to have said it differently. Though the the so-called uh, red line it was very very legitimate, and yeah. the Assad was using chemical weapons right. on his own people. Now the Russians have red lines too; they just don't state it. And I would say that a unstated Russian red line is we are not going to let um, the Assad regime fall. Mm. And when it became weeks, months in uh, the autumn, they had to make a decision. Do we go or don't go? And they went to save the, to save the regime. Right. And, then, and then all the other things. Another reason perhaps was in the late summer of 2014, they didn't say it as such, but they intervened in, in eastern Ukraine to save those um, the, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk were on the, on the verge of falling. They didn't call it a red line, but they went in. Hmm. Uh, and I do need to make a point. Yeah. While I talk about um, Russia and Ukraine and finding a way where I believe there are more interests in convergence than not, uh, that does not um, get them off the hook with eastern Ukraine and Crimea. That's still open. Yeah. I still support the sanctions regime uh, until that is all somehow sorted out. This is my simplistic mind, General, but um, it seems like uh, Assad is dead if everyone – not dead. That sounds too strong. But Assad is over if the U.S. and the coalition forces and Russia would want it. But Russia doesn't want Assad gone. But wouldn't it make sense that Russia at least push a regime change in leadership or – Something just just to yeah. politically get him out of there, so that it stops the bleeding. The answer is, I think they already see this, but 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 it's in the back channels, the diplomacy. Okay, yeah. This is going to be resolved rather than our politicians, you know, going Pushing on back it. and forth at high voltage level. Yeah, yeah, and it's got to be Russia, right? It's got to be. It, yeah, it's got to be Russia, uh, uh, and. Um, um, uh, they're there, and and they have landed hard with their boots in there, um, and and I don't think they, I think that they ultimately would like to get out militarily, but they're now committed. Yeah. And they're committed to the regime, and some time of successful resolution um, of the political problem involving the Assad regime, and of course the other very, very big problem. We should not have been surprised, Matt, that they came in hard bombing what we called moderate rebels. Uh, we didn't like it, I didn't like it, but those are the rebels at that time geographically were the greatest threat, existential threat, to the Assad regime. Wow. They were closest to his power centers. They hate ISIS too. And and they started to expand their bombing uh, beyond those the, those reb, the, uh, the rebels that we backed um, uh, when they felt they had that situation in control. 
Yeah, man, that yeah, and and I guess that that creates that's the complexity, right? They're bombing yeah. people that would be helping us fight ISIS, but they're really fighting Assad, and that creates the I guess the cover for all of the chaos. Um, as we wrap it up, uh, General, we, we've heard a lot from some of the candidates, Trump in particular, about. Uh, immigration, you know, anti-Muslim immigration. Um, and one of the points that you make in your article about how to really take on ISIS is to remain moderate and inclusive. Do, do you feel in all your expertise in the Middle East, do you feel that the that the language we're using here and um, kind of an, anti, an anti-Muslim stance is – is is harming our battle against ISIS? Yes, I do. Um, and while there are aspects of, 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 of Islam, the radical Islam, that I also am very, very worried about, um, going out on the stump and railing the way we do against Islam as an entire entity is only, only uh, counterproductive. In uh, in going out and talking about we're going to bomb them, you know, um, we're going to wipe them out, yeah. um, or going and saying that we're going to kill the families of ISIS. How crazy is that? Right. How un us is that? Right. Um, and and I'm all about firm borders and firm controls. And if we need to make them more stringent, we do. But if you get through those gates, we remain inclusive. As a multi-denominational religious nation, um, um, and, and, and it has to be that way. We can't be anything other than that. We can't go into a brown shirt type of rhetoric. It's dangerous. Right. I mean, we need to model. We need to model the ideal, right, and be the ideal instead of shrinking. Well, yes, exactly. And that doesn't mean that we're weak or, right. or, or in, we we be, we're very firm. We're hard, strong controls. But, 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 but these blanket statements are dangerous, and they create more ISIS, both externally and maybe even more troublingly, as we saw in San Bernardino, internally. Oh, yeah. And, and again, because they're all fighting about whether there really were videos uh, by, being used by ISIS for using Trump's comments. But the reality, uh, Brigadier General Peter Zwack is a former U.S. military intelligence officer. I mean – it, it is impacting. So when you say that, I think I think it's really important that we hear it. Well, General, we appreciate you and uh, and your great work, and keep up the great work there at Georgetown University as well. And happy holidays. You know, I just uh, just so you know, I've just left uh, Georgetown you? recently, so I just need to be sure we're clear. Now, on that. now where are, now where are you going, General? Um, I, I'll be um, over at National Defense University. There you go um, in Washington. Well, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work and keep writing. We need we need more articles like yours. Good stuff, folks. Wow. It's, it's fun to talk to the people that know, huh? Good stuff. We'll take a break, folks, when we come back. Uh, just quickly wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Yourself, I'm every little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. And happy holidays to you. It's hard to follow up a little ISIS talk with that. Man, Sam, Sam Smith has got the best voice. 
This is probably what I would have done for a living. I would have been a singer like Sam Smith if I wasn't whatever I am. Hey, uh, again, folks, it's it's the holiday season, right? Uh, so go enjoy yourself. Know that you have smart people uh, trying to combat some of these bigger issues in the world. And just because you only hear from the politicians doesn't mean that's all that's going on. There's a lot of other very well-trained people behind the scenes as well. And uh, we have got another great hour in just a minute Uh, We'll take a break. We'll go do uh, some headlines, listen to the BBC, and then we'll come back for a whole other hour of, uh, of insight, information that you need to live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show on the day before the eve of Christmas. Happy Festivus. Feliz Festivus. What? It's Festivus. Oh. The day we celebrate the non-commercial and non-commercialized holiday. We have a pole instead of a tree, just a silver pole. I need to find that episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> I think there was a pool table and they were all standing around it in this little tiny room and they couldn't, you know, pull the, the pool cue back there, jam on the wall with it, and they started talking about Festivus and <laughs> it's just some weird episode. It's good. It's all good. Happy Festivus to to you today, and um, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of I don't know what we call it, holiday cheer, holiday spirit. Did you hear about this DJ in Austria? He went rogue in a bid to get his listeners into the Christmas spirit. He locked himself in his studio so he could play a trusted holiday classic on repeat. He played Wham's 1984 hit Last Christmas. Oh. Non-stop for almost two hours. All the 80s goodness. Listen to that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Don't, you can see why he would do that. Two hours. 24 times they listen to this thing. Oh. His name is Joe Kohlhofer. Kohlhofer. He played the catchy tune sung by George Michael and Andrew Ridgely 24 times during his breakfast show. As his co-host watched helplessly through a glass partition. Could you go out there and grab that piece of paper for me? Yeah, Great. Can you go get that? Oh, gotcha. Lock the Lock. And he would have kept playing it for days, I'm sure. Except for his four-year-old daughter called in to say she didn't like it. Yeah. Daddy, you're hurting my ears. Come on, Daddy. This song damages my soul. Can you stop playing it, please? Unlock the door and come out, Daddy. <laughs> he would have come out eventually. I've always wondered, a lot of the places where I've worked did not have locks on the doors. Yeah, we have locks. And we have locks on the doors here. Yeah. So we could lock the door. Yeah. Now, I, I guess they could go downstairs and pull the plug on the station. Yeah. But, but we'd have fun. And wasn't this an episode of WKRP? I think it was. Didn't they lock the door and do some sort of protest? Man, way to bring up the 70s. Is it yeah. 70s, late 70s? That was a great show. It's a good show. That's what got me into radio. Still holds up. WKRP in Cincinnati. They start throwing turkeys out the window. Mm-hmm. That was great. 
those were the days. Anyway, um, uh, happy Festivus and the day before uh, the big Eve day, Christmas Eve. It's Eve Eve. It's the Eve of the Eve. It's the day of the – the day's pre-Eve. Pre-Eve? Mm. When does the Eve start if there – you're making some designation That would be here. in the evening tomorrow. Like what time? I'd say evening would start – When does the evening start? Uh, dusk. OK. So well, five around, around 50, here it's like 5, yeah. 5 – well, right now if you go outside. <laughs> it's snowing by the way. It's snowing here in, in Utah. Okay, let me just show – this in, would be uh, a major curveball if the, we got snowed in here the and east, we were stuck. The East Coast golf golf courses are still open. I know. I saw an interview with a guy last night. He's like, yep, we'll be open on Christmas. Should be a good year for us. Let's just get the pecking order down if we can. If we are stuck here okay. because of a snowstorm, yes. Uh, the pecking order as far as if, there, if we run out of food. Well, you'll, you'll the, probably be here longer than both me and Ben. Why? Just you tend to stay longer than I do. Well, I unless you're just going to leave. Well, again, <laughs> honestly, why stay? It's I don't want to be stuck here. You'll be okay. No, I'm I'm afraid I'll be stuck here. <laughs> so if if there is if we are stuck here, uh, I will be the last one eaten. Well, you do realize Terry and I can probably overpower you. Oh, is that what you think? I I I don't think I'd ever get that to that point. We do have like three vending machines. Yeah, the vending the machines building. are right there. But the, do you have just cash? Glass. It's just glass on the front of them. Do you have coins? It's okay. It's if glass. you're willing to kill a man for food. This is where I'd give my right arm for my wife because she carries all the change. <laughs> <laughs> we have three vending machines and no way to get the food out. We could break the machines. They would understand we're talking survival. Right. Famous. Famous last And words. Studio C downstairs, you know they have food. Yeah. You know they have like a catering table uh, of some kind. I know. Food services. Maddening. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, let's go check in on the president of the United States, see uh, what's going on with his news. Um, and, you know, because it never stops for the president. No. Wherever you are. Oh. Apparently we're having a luau. <laughs> uh, they're doing the hooky lau. Yeah, they, they connected us to his phone in Hawaii, so this should be him. Mr. President? Yeah, no. I bet he's in a hammock right now. Wouldn't you be? I would be. And I'd be circled around by my staff while I just sit there and... Is that how he does the security <laughs> meetings? He's in a hammock? <laughs> he's in a hammock in his with his whitish, lighter legs. <laughs> Yelling at Carrie to fix whatever problem there is in Russia, and he's yeah. just kind of swinging in the breeze. This is great. Well, that's fun. Hey, uh, any other news going on with the politicians around the world? There is quite a bit. Just months ago, many politicians observed, though, thought it light, highly unlikely that Donald Trump could sustain his lead in the polls. However, on the eve of 2016, uh, that's a little presumptuous. There's another week. Yeah. But the eve of 2016, the perennial frontrunner commands 39% of, of support from Republican-inclined voters. A CNN poll released today found Senator Ted Cruz trails at 18%. An improvement since the last poll in November, but still a distant second to Trump. In another embarrassing event for the Secret Service, an agent's gun, badge, radio, handcuffs, and flashlight were stolen Monday afternoon around 4 p.m. near the White House. The items were taken from an agent's personal vehicle while it was parked in downtown Washington. And a report filed to the Metropolitan Police Department described that the agent 
noticed a back rear window of his car had been, quote, unzipped. Unzipped? Was he driving a Jeep? Is yeah, that what was. <laughs> kind of odd, an unzipped That's window. That's a weird phrase. British Prime Minister David Cameron's office says that he will investigate a lawmaker's claim that U.S. officials prevented a British Muslim family from flying to, Di- or from flying to Disneyland for a planned holiday. Stella Keesley, a member of the opposition Labor Party, says U.S. officials gave no explanation for refusing to allow her constituents to board a flight uh, from England December 15th. She told the British newspaper The Guardian that this is part of a larger pattern affecting British Muslims and the lack of information from U.S. officials is sparking resentment among Muslims who feel discriminated against. The issue is sensitive in part because U.S. President content, uh, presidential contender Donald Trump has called for a temporary ban on Muslims visiting the U.S. due to concerns about extremist attacks. Hmm. So a family can't go to Disneyland. Man. See this? Where is this going to end? It continues. The majority of U.S. voters oppose accepting Syrian refugees into the country, according to a Quinnipiac University poll released this morning. The survey found 51% of people oppose refugees entering the U.S., while 43% support the policy. The Obama administration is planning on accepting at least 10,000 Syrian refugees in the U.S. over the next year, despite calls from many Republicans to freeze the plan. And then, of course, they give out the Republican-Democrat, and it's split, as you would imagine. Democrats for, Republicans mostly against. Kind of an an issue that will continue to uh, be part of the political conversation as we go here three friends involved in buying tickets and claiming jackpots that were allegedly fixed by a state lottery insider have something else unusually in common prosecutors say what they hunt for bigfoot in their spare time wow so in the legal motion that is a, it is a strange and an elusive what the hunt for so in a legal motion that is as strange as the elusive humanoid Iowa prosecutor Rob Sand asked a judge Monday to bar any discussion of Bigfoot hunting at the upcoming trial of Eddie <laughs> Tipton the lottery official accused of fixing multiple jackpots the prejudicial effect can uh, could potentially be as strong as the Sasquatch itself it says in the legal document <laughs> jurors could be incredulous they could find it unusual enough that it outweighs other evidence in their mind. So now in the jury pool, one of the questions will be, do you believe in Sasquatch? They would try to help people self-eliminate, yeah. Interesting. So it's inter- the article goes on and on and on about what they did and the integral plan and how they set up across multiple states different jackpots and they won small amounts of money and they were you know, pooling this massive amount of money they were gathering but then they also, in their spare time, hunt Bigfoot. Well, you need money to, to hunt Bigfoot. It that, ain't an easy thing to get. That goes to character, and apparently it's <laughs> it's involved in all this. So she's like, or the the the, the lawyer's That's like, so we can't great. talk about Bigfoot in here. So only in America. <laughs> this is great, good stuff. And at last report, yeah. they have not found Bigfoot. They're still hunting. Oh, even with all that money? Yeah, I think there's a show on uh, on cable. It's in its fourth season about hunting Bigfoot. <laughs> I've I'm not laughing. I've. He he appeared at a scout camp once that I was at. I've had some snipes show up. Oh yeah, but no bigfoots. Snipes are the hardest things to catch. Yeah, it's funny, and I must not see them because other people can see them when I can't. Weird, weird. Hey, we have got uh, a true blue. Um, what do we want to call it? Our, our next interview is. It's a great opportunity. We have the governor. And the first lady of the state of Utah that will be joining us for an interview. 
And I, I wanted them um, on the show. It's one thing to go. I don't want to go talk politics anymore. I want to know the behind the scenes of being a governor and a first lady. And we were honored to have Utah's uh, governor and first lady join us. We're going to ask them about everything, their lives, their dating lives, how they make decisions, how they guide their political, you know, decision making. It's powerful. It's a really interesting interview. And uh, it's a little holiday surprise for all of us. If you have a hard time keeping your family life in order while you're trying to live a a high-pressure job, stick with us and listen to this great interview with the governor. We'll be back, folks. Uh, This is the Matt Townsend Show, giving you the tools, the information you need to live longer and love stronger. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, have I hit? Have I hit the good life? I am. I have seriously. I feel totally blessed to have two. I think very special people uh, with me today: um, Governor Gary Herbert and uh, the First Lady Jeanette Herbert, uh, Governor of the State of Utah, is on the Matt Townsend Show. What? What? How did you guys get stuck here? Because hey, you're our favorite. I, your family's my. I, this is the pinnacle of my political career. I know it is. You. You should. You have no idea how big this is, Governor. I, it's all downhill after today. It's so sad for you. This all started because we were talking at your Uplift Families Conference. That's right. And it's like I'm thinking, okay, I'll come do the conference, but then you got to come on my show. And the governor is the one that said he would do it. You, you, Mrs. Herbert was like, she was over schmoozing, shaking hands, and the governor got I, you. Here. I was there from the very beginning. Anytime I can get on the radio, I'm excited. You <laughs> love it. What's funny about uh, having you on here is you, you're a very, this is a very successful state uh, as far as economically, we're thriving, Utah is. And Governor Herbert, you're doing a lot of stuff right. Well, we're doing a lot of stuff right. We have good policies in place, and we have good principles that guide us, and we have good people to work with. It's, uh, you know, Utah is blessed with a lot of really wonderful people, and uh, uh, we just passed the 3 million population mark. And so tribute to the people. We have an entrepreneurial spirit here, so our business sector is growing remarkably well. We're the most healthy economy in America today. We've diversified. We're about the fourth most diverse economy. And Forbes just named us again for the fifth time in six years, the best place for business. Now, why? Why is I mean, it's Utah, Governor. It's not. We're not talking Silicon Valley. Yeah, that's the question people ask because it is surprising that why Utah? And again, we start with good people, but we have a very business-friendly environment. We've cut taxes. We've flattened the rate. Uh, we have business regulation reform, so we don't have onerous regulations. We follow the mantra of keep government off your back and out of your wallets. Yeah. And that allows the entrepreneur and the private sector to flourish. Uh, we have a good legislature that has conservative principles. We don't spend more than we take in. Uh, we don't have unnecessary debt. We save for a rainy day. We have a large rainy day fund, which most states do not have. And we're one of only 10 states now that have a AAA bond rating from wow. all the rating agencies in, in, on Wall Street. So, again, we are a very good environment. 
We have efficiency in state government. We have fewer state employees, for example, in Utah than we did back in the year 2002. Wow. Oh, so you're actually, yeah, you're, yeah. you're trimming, you're making it healthier. Yeah, we're doing more with less. Yeah. We've embraced technology. We have better processes. We're reforming. And we still have a goal right now. Even though we've been listed as one of the best managed, if not the best managed states in America, we're trying to find ways to do it even better. And we have a goal of increased efficiency, 25% by the end of 2016. So we're really pushing uh, our our staff and our employees and our department heads to do even better in respecting the taxpayers' dollars. That environment provides a very good field for economic growth. I mean, so there's do other states, because you hear of states that are succeeding like this, and it seems like all the states should be paying attention. Well, states are. Do they come visit you? Do they They, find out? We had one fellow who was running for governor. Uh, of a state that was not performing very well, came, took our 10-point economic development plan, incorporated that into his own campaign for governor, got elected, and has worked over the last four years to turn that state around. It's gone from the bottom of the pack to the middle of the pack. So the principles we have here will work for any state. It's not a zero-sum game. Free market capitalism is designed to grow and expand and improve. And uh, we're proving that point. And other states, in fact, are, in fact, Copying They're what coming we're to doing. find out what's in this. What's in the special sauce? Yesterday, both of you uh, had a special visitor from Ohio. John Kasich was in town, presidential candidate. He came, and wh- where did you 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 took him, um, Mrs. Herbert? Where where did you end up going with, and why was he in town? Uh, he he just stopped. They had their debate in in Las Vegas, and uh, so they just made a, a quick stop here after they went to Vegas before he flew on to his next event. But. Yeah. Um, you know they they like to visit all the states and 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 you guys seem close. But, I mean, it's, it, is it, you, I guess once once you're in the governor's club and the first lady's club, it's it's really interesting. You know, we have conferences a few times a year, and you really get to know all the governors and the governor's spouses. The spouses have kind of their own organization that we work with, and and so you do get really close with them. They're yeah. they're really, you know, it's surprising. I think because it's it's a little bit more. Um, I mean, as far as getting along, I think the governors. They all want the same thing for their states, you know, and they have to have balanced budgets. And so they don't have quite the division that they have back in D.C. Yeah. And so they're a lot more functional, I think. <laughs> there seems like there's something to that. And help me clue me in on the political side of this because the governors, they, they seem to be able to talk. Yeah, we're a lot more collegial. And, again, so your listeners understand Governor John Kasich from Ohio is running for president, one of the right. many out there. And uh, – we get to know each other in our conferences. Uh, the good news for us all is that we share best practices. You know, states are the laboratories of democracy, laboratories of innovation. We're little pilot programs always constantly being run out there and trying out new ideas, new, uh, new, new ways of doing things, as opposed to Washington, D.C., which has a one-size-fits-all mentality. And it works for maybe a few, but not for the many. So states, we share best practices, and after we do that, we go back to our own domain, go Mm. back to our own states. So we're not trying to play king of the hill in Washington, D.C., where everybody's trying to climb up the same hill. We all have 50 different hills to climb up and to work with our own respective states. Are you surprised that the governors in in the presidential races aren't getting more – grab, more traction, like Governor Christie, uh, Governor Kasich. They're not they, – they, they don't seem it's, – it's kind of anti-incumbent, it almost it seems like. Something's not yeah, driving I, there. I, it's a little surprising because I do believe that the governors 
have the best experience to become the president. They've already done it in a smaller scale, the executive branch responsibilities. They know how to work with legislators. They know how to be bipartisan, bring people together to get things done. They have to execute. They have to accomplish something. Legislators, on the other hand, do not and don't. And uh, the dysfunctionality in Washington, D.C., I think, is part of the mentality of the public today. And so they're looking for kind of an outsider and I think that's why you see some appeal with the Donald Trump, uh, Carly Fiorina, uh, Ben Carson, outsiders who say, right. well, I'll come outside in and fix things. The problem I got there is they don't have the experience right. necessary to know how to fix it. So I'm partial to governors. It's probably no surprise. Yeah, you should be. As a governor and the public at large. I mean, you go back over the last you know, 30 years and the majority of the ones we've elected have been previous governors. Man, and it's it's got to be weird to even think you are the governor. Like, and we talked about this, not that you aren't capable of it, but all of a sudden you, you're, you were the lieutenant governor for, um, John, for Huntsman. Uh, Governor John Huntsman. Governor John Huntsman. For four and a half years. And it's an improbable journey. I think Jeanette and I will both understand that, you know, it's nothing that we ever aspired to. It somehow just happened, uh, you know, just trying to be people involved and, and giving back to the community. Our our parents uh, were all good service people that worked on their chambers of commerce and and uh, worked to make their communities better. So we, we had good teaching from our parents. But uh, it's been a very improbable journey, and we would have never believed this to have happened uh, when we were first married. Uh, what, so. What's it like being married to the governor? I mean, that, Jeanette, has got to be enough to – you're like, hey, you're making dinner tonight. <laughs> Don't keep – I'm not your servant. I mean, because you, you, you were just a healthy family. You had your own uh, daycare company, your own daycare practice, and the, the governor – I mean, you, you were just working your way up, doing civil work, and then all of a sudden you become a lieutenant governor – then, then governor when um, John Huntsman became a secretary of. It, it wasn't a, all of a sudden. It's wasn't not it? all of a sudden. It's uh, you know life happens. Yeah. You know from the time we were married and we had a good real estate business that we were doing and that made sense for a while, but during the eighties, uh, your listeners probably can't remember. Yeah. But right. During the eighties, uh, we had interest rates became really high, sixteen to sixteen and a half percent mortgage money. Today we're arguing about four percent, yeah. And prime rate was at twenty-two percent, and so you know times were tough, and it was uh, we had buyers who wanted to buy and sellers who want to sell, but no mechanism to make a deal, and so my real estate brokerage suffered. Jeanette then got involved in the daycare businesses. We had to find an alternative way right. to survive, and then I got so angry I decided to run for office, <laughs> and I'd been involved in politics but never run for office, and so. I decided my big foray into politics, I ran for the city council of my hometown. Right. And there was 13 people that ran, and I lost by 36 votes. Oh. So that was the end of my political career, I thought. Yeah, you thought, I'm done. I'm not doing yeah, that I'm again. Not, I'm done with that, and that was okay with me. I'd never aspired to that, and I got my message out there. But I had some people that liked what I'd said, and so they encouraged me to run for county commissioner. Mm. And uh, so Utah County here, and uh, that was a little bigger responsibility. And, and I, 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 12 people ran that time, and I won. Yes. And so 
I got selected as the new Utah County Commissioner and spent 14 years and really enjoyed doing that and got more out of real estate, or left kind of the real estate yeah. business and more into politics, which cost me a little bit of money, but I really enjoyed the work. And, and you were good at it. And that's where you, you – because isn't it just networking? It's meeting people. It's serving. It's getting stuff done. It's pushing where you can. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hard job. You know, you can – you never please everybody. There's always somebody angry and – I've got developed the adage that in politics, friends come and go, but enemies accumulate. And you know, you don't have to irritate somebody <laughs> one time to have them really be angry right. at you. And so it's it's a unique kind of profession. I'm glad that there are good people uh, out there that do it. We need to have good people step up and, and say, "Choose me and run for elected office." And in Utah, we have by and large really great people that have been elected to office representing the will of the people and, and uh, stand for those principles and values that we here in Utah uh, sustain. So, so back to my question. <laughs> yeah. Back to you, Mrs. Herbert. Yes. Uh, pardon me. Because <laughs> you're sitting there, you ran daycare. And what's interesting now, you have a platform, you can do whatever you want as the first lady, really. You have a little more leverage, a little, you have a, a team that can help you now. And you're choosing to go work with families in your Uplift Families program. Does that come from your your daycare job? You know, it actually or? does. When I had my child care center, um, you see all different type of family dynamics in there. And some of them that worked really well and some that didn't work quite as well. And yeah. I would have parents come in to me and want advice on, you know, I'm struggling with this child. You know, what can I do? And I can remember thinking at the time, I wish we had like a mandatory parenting class in the high schools because it just seemed like parents needed additional instruction. Some of them, uh, you know, we kind of go into this without any instruction, without any yeah. manual of any kind. And it's, I think, especially in today's day, you know, with, with all the stresses that we have socially and everything with kids, that parents have to be extra vigilant. And so to learn a little bit ahead of time, to take classes, to take some instruction, kind of find a, the That's you such know, a valuable resource. best way to do things, better way to do things. There's not a perfect program right. and not perfect parents, but there's certainly things that we can do to make things a lot easier on the parents and the children in the home. And, and you're speaking with knowledge. You have six children and 16 grandchildren. Any great grands yet? Oh, no. No, not you're not yet. that old. Come on. <laughs> but isn't it um, – and I saw this, I, and I saw your family, and I met a lot of your family at, at the Uplift uh, Families event. It's, there's just something powerful that I think we underestimate about the power of healthy families. It's like we, we're not – it's not an asset or a resource that we hold up and esteem usually as highly as maybe we should. Well, when they say – when they make the statement that the family is the cornerstone of society – when you look at, at what happens inside the family, you know, that's where they learn those early lessons. That's where they're taught the value system. They, they learn different values. They learn how to get along. They learn how to cooperate. They learn how to work. You know, all those lessons that can be taught are what are going to be going out into the society after and making a, a real strong, you know, viable society. And so that's really why it's so important that the families learn how to work, learn yeah. how to function inside that family so that we as a whole as a society – you know, can, and you teach your principles and your work ethic. You teach. You can do. You can do both, um, which is which is one reason I wanted you on the show. And on the show, we'll 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 talk a little more politics. But I really like to just understand and learn what's going on. Not in your. I don't want the nitty gritty details. But you're just normal folk. But you're you're the governor and the first lady of a thriving state, trying to be grandparents, trying to keep it all together. Um, let's do this. Let's take a break and come back. When we come back, Governor, I want to talk about a decision you made 
um, about the refugees from Syria, which seemed like an interesting decision politically, but it seems also like a perfect mix of policy and just principles. You got to live the principle. Um, I want to hear about that. Also, want to? I'm going to find out. I'm dying to know where you two met and your first date. We'll get into that. <laughs> Do you remember, Governor? Okay. I'll never forget. It's an interesting story, at least from my perspective. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll take a break. We'll be right back, folks. Stick with us. We're 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 learning the uh, the heart and the hopes of. Uh, the first, the first couple, and actually the first family of the state of Utah, Governor Gary and Mrs. Jeanette Herbert. We appreciate it. We'll be, we appreciate you being here. We'll be right back. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, I uh, feel blessed today to have such great guests with us. Joining us today, Governor Gary Herbert and uh, the First Lady of the State of Utah, Mrs. Jeanette Herbert. Um, appreciate you. Good people, but great leaders. And I, I'm honored to have you on the show. But one of the things I, I like to tell more about the human side than just get into being a policy wonk. Okay? I don't want to go there, <laughs> Governor. Okay. But... Uh, you, your wife just – I think she has a really powerful uh, view, and I've seen it in two or three different speeches that I've been around when she was when she was talking about families and the power of families and farming families. It was another event we went to. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's she cares about family, and she started this program, Uplift Families, to educate, to teach the skills. But why does that matter, and what do you think of the work she's doing? Well, let me just tell you, as somebody who's known her – well, for about 46 years, married for 45. Um, she's a great wife. She's been a great mother. And she's an all-world grandmother. I mean, there's, oh, my <laughs> yeah, gosh. Like not all-American, not all-state. She's all-world. Yeah. And uh, she understands the importance of family and taking time with kids and raising them properly and teaching them good values and principles. And uh, she does a great job in our own family. And she recognizes the need that we have in society to... I understand the importance of veneration of the family. And so, as she mentioned, you know, the, the kids don't come with any instruction sheet right. on how to raise them. And our six kids all were different and all had unique needs and uh, needed to be treated differently. And what she's doing to help us with parenting skills and, and uh, focusing on the importance of families is an important thing for me in politics because most of society's ills, uh, you can find originate from broken families and bad parenting and not teaching our young people, the rising generation, what their responsibilities are and how they should interact with other their neighbors and other people. And and so when we have this breakdown of the family, we find illegitimacy goes up. We find uh, substance abuse, drug use, a, a criminal effect, gang involvement. Mm. Uh, alcohol abuse. I mean, all those things that create a cost for us as taxpayers because of the problems really are headquartered in just dysfunctional families. Yeah. And so what she's doing is in 
incredibly important, and I hope people grasp that across the country. We've got to get back to understanding that the the foundation, the, the cornerstone of a, a great society is great families. We had uh, Governor Levitt on, um, who also became Secretary of Health and Human Services under the Bush administration, but he was the governor of the state of Utah. And really, one of the greatest memories I had was that his wife had started that the the marriage initiative here in Utah to strengthen and embolden marriage. Actually, I guess to venerate and to, to elevate the, the, the status of marriage. So now, and then when they, when they went away, that kind of faded out. And then to see that the family's now coming back top of mind, it really is. It's, it's, it's the key of where the principles are taught. And you guys married 45 plus years. Is that right? Yep. 45 wonderful years. Peaceful, loving No conflict, no problem, no challenge. 40 out of 45 was not bad. That's such a great joke, though. Um, And then then six kids, that's a big deal. I have six, but, you know, it feels like 12. It's it's hard. Um, Talk to us about how you met and, uh, I mean, just – your first date? Was, did somebody have to coerce the other? Was it a sales job, Governor? Did you have to talk her into this? I I always felt like it was a sales job, and <laughs> I did my best selling. She, did she feel? Did you feel bait and switched? Well, I'll tell you the story, and then you can. But yeah. he, uh, I worked at a bank in Orem part time while I was going to college, and um, I was there, and I was the drive up window teller, and so my back was always to everyone else that was yeah. inside the bank. And he, I worked with one of his really good friends from high school. And so he had come into the bank to make a deposit, had seen me across the room and asked well, Jackie. Well, I saw the back of you. Saw the, yeah. I saw the back and the front oh, you, and the you, side. You just I, kept, she you turned around, so I was paying <laughs> rapt attention. And, That's great. And she was just a knockout babe. That's great. That's all I can say. <laughs> so he said, he asked, you know, who I was. And he says, well, can line me up with her. Yeah. And so she said, okay, well, I'll talk to her. Well, she came over to my window, and she said, did you see that guy I was just talking to? And I hadn't. And just then, his car was pulling out of the parking lot. What was he driving? Do you remember? Okay, this is what was funny, is he was driving a brand-new GTO, which was kind of the hot car at the time. Yeah, he was showy. I could not see him at all. I could just see the car. And I says, well, is that his car? And she says, well, yes, I think so. And I says, well, I'll go out with him then. <laughs> He's got great taste. Well, yes. you find out. So, so we, you know, we go out on a, a really a blind date. Yeah. And I mean, this is how he was such so suave. Yeah. We get in the car. He kind of tosses me a paper and he says, here, pick out a movie. <laughs> yeah, we got we go to the movie. We talked about. Well, I called her up to kind of. To make sure we had the date was yeah. on, and I said, "We'll go to the movies." So I thought I'd be a gentleman. You pick the movie. <laughs> you pick the you movie. You pick the movie. You want to go? Here's the here's the oh, selection. Governor. It so, wasn't the smoothest first no. date. I, you know, he's lucky you he got a second You could have at least pretended like you. <laughs> had but she liked my uh, my 1968 GTO. That so was she amazing. Was, yeah. She was happy. Other than so we we dated for <laughs> a, a while, maybe a month or three so, three or four months, and. He, uh, I all of a sudden find out that this wasn't really his car; it was his uncle's he car. He stole it. His uncle was done. I was tending the car. And let him babysit the car. Oh, neat. He had never told me that part yeah. until I was kind See, of that's the bait and, and switch. Then was, that, that was, was the, the bait, bait and switch, switch. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, he did pull bait and switch. Well, on me. It turned out okay, right? And then yeah. then you got married. You have six kids, three and three. 
which is yeah. amazing. It kept the balance of power. Yeah. yeah. And I've met a lot of them, and they're talented. And you notice they're diverse, too. Right? I mean, right? They have different, like a lot of families keep them in the same realm. They all, they all like the right, same yeah. thing. But yours is a diverse group and, and healthy group. What's it like being governor and grandparent? You know, I can tell you that my more important responsibility is husband, father, grandfather. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to be keep up with Jeanette on the grandfather side yeah, of things. Hard? And uh, we live for Sundays, frankly, because we get together as a family every Sunday. And it's an opportunity for us to go to church and kind of— um, you know, get away from the responsibilities and the trappings of governor and first lady. And at our LDS ward where we go to church, we uh, are just, you know, brother and sister Herbert or Gary mm. or Jeanette or, hey, you. And it, you go to the, you go, you're not just living in the mansion. You kind of live in the mansion during the week, but on the weekend, you go back to your old normal life. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Go back to our home in Orem and uh, just normal folks. And That's great. We're just normal folks anyway. I mean, we yeah. go shopping at Smith's and, grocery store and we walk the malls and do our Christmas shopping and we're, we're just about as typical as you can be here in Utah. And, is, and is it hard though? Does it, I mean, it seems like, and this is Herbert, you'd, it'd be easy to get sucked into the politics and sometimes you see some of these politicians lose themselves. Is it, is it hard to not just get pulled into it all? Well, it's interesting. When we first, when we first got that call from John Huntsman saying he was going to take the job as the ambassador of China, you know, we it was it was really quite emotional for us because yeah. we knew that he was planning on running for governor when Huntsman left office, but all of a sudden it's just dropped it's in now. your lap. Yeah, and, you're in it. You know, you don't have time to really go through the preparation mentally, and so it was it was really a surreal uh, feeling. But that Sunday, as our family came over, then they called the little council yeah. and uh, they sat down and kind of laid down the rules, and you know, basically said, <laughs> you know, you are going to be a better governor if you keep a balanced life. And uh, we're really close as a family, and so we expect you to, you know, still do things as a family. Like You'll babysit. We need you babysitting and, oh, yeah. twice a week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not quite to that but That's degree, actually but, beautiful because it was a family It really decision. was. It was, you know, and they, and they said, we'll hold your feet to the fire. We yeah. want you to be honest. We expect you to, you know. And they just kind of went down this list, and uh, they do. And, I mean, we're, um, we do. We spend a lot of time together. We, we try to include them when we have events, you know, like if we're going to a rodeo yeah. or something. And, and so who wants to come to the rodeo with us? And so we try to do that because we are very busy, and you can really get – you know, I know just the requests I get every week, his are about oh, five times I, I get about 10 or 15 requests a day to be somewhere Dude, to do really? something. And so you could get all consumed in mm-hmm. it. But, again, we live for Sundays. Uh, I know we try to calendar t- together. She has a, a, a personal assistant, as do I, and we share those calendars. And so we take time to go to our grandkids' ball games and dance recitals and piano recitals and concerts. And so we try to be the typical grandparents. And, uh, and we do a lot of that because they, we actually have our kids have learned to call our schedulers. Yeah. So it's on the and schedule. And get things on no, the schedule before anything else. Right. And so, it, you know, when we go through our schedule, we look at that and say, Oh yes, that's you know it. we can we cannot do this event. Well, In, we'll, instead of just saying, yeah. "Oh yeah, it wasn't on my," I didn't know. Sorry, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. Your kids are proactively, which is their responsibility, 
of Which was having kind you of insult- in this role. It was insulting to them at first. Yeah. We said, Are you kidding? <laughs> you know, and I can remember feeling the same about him when he first told me yeah. when he was talk lieutenant my, governor. Talk, you got to talk you know, to Fran. It's like I'm talking Fran to the you. Fran the scheduler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, Fran the scheduler, yeah. by the way. But no, but so that's that's really helped with doing that. But yeah, we do try to on Saturdays get to their ball games and mm-hmm. dance recitals and things like that, you know. And, and even during the week. So, and Jeanette's yeah. been really good at that. It's sometimes we have to divide and yeah. conquer. And, uh, you know, whether somebody's speaking in church or we sometimes, because we have enough kids and grandkids, that they we might have uh, com- competing speeches. You oh, know, yeah, you can divide it up. Meetings. And so we go to one, I go to one, and Jeanette goes to the other. That's and great. so we kind of divide it up. But the it's, thing that people our, probably our, don't understand, we've got six children, and they all live within 15 minutes of our oh, home. Oh, wow. So we made that a rule. We made that a rule. You can't marry our children and move. Yeah. <laughs> you can't <laughs> move away. <laughs> so, I'm going to be the governor someday. But, but <laughs> our family, I can tell you, Matt, the family keeps us grounded. That's great. And uh, because that is our number one priority, and uh, they're proud of us and what we do, but they understand that the first responsibility is, is their parents and grandparents. And uh, But I can see it, too, and I can see it's almost like you're not taking this as a right that you should be the governor and the first lady. It's almost like a stewardship. You have, a, you have a, almost a spiritual kind of need to be serving. And I saw that during your event, the Uplift Families, is when there was a tragic um, – flood in southern Utah, and a, a family, a bunch of people were swept away in the river. Yes. And I remember talking to you there, and I saw you you were impacted profoundly by having heard that, and I think you had just visited there. We met with the families down in Hilldale, and, and again, not without controversy, a lot of uh, polygamous families are right. down there, but they're human beings, and they have feelings, and they love their children, and and it was just a tragedy, and and uh, to go down any any human being that has tragedy, you should feel for, and your heart should break for them, and then uh, that should turn into action. What can we do to help? Yeah, and that's what good neighbors are about, and I think that's what the Savior tried to teach us: is you know we need to look ways to serve our fellow man, and in serving our fellow man, we serve Him. And so we have difficulties. I'm, you have that a lot. I mean, lot. you'll have a soldier that they bring home from the war, and I mean. Is and I guess do you share that together? I mean, you'll then we have to console each other and lift each other and the state. Well, we usually attend the funerals together, and and you know those are really you know they're they're really touching, and and uh, people appreciate the fact that the governor cares. He'll call them up after he finds up and talk to him you know personally on the phone. Yeah, and uh, they really it means so much to them to know that that he would take time out of his schedule to do that, and but it's important. You know, I mean, this is these are losses that are just really. Uh, heart wrenching and that no parent wants to go yeah. through and and so and instead we kind of then we hear the news and we kind of just hear the hype of it or the politicization of it or the gun control of it it's a there's not just the tender heart of mm-hmm. of leaders serving people that need love it's, it's some of the hardest things i do and i've been invited to to not only uh, attend but sometimes to speak uh-huh. and that's uh, always a challenge yeah. and it's an opportunity and i'm grateful but uh Again, it brings us closer together. I, I think there's a reason why we have adversity in life. We learn from those uh, challenging th- times. We develop better sensitivities and love for each other and helps bring us together. Yeah. So Heavenly Father knows what he's doing when it comes to <laughs> those challenges of life, he which totally make does. us more what I'd call Christ-like. Well, and um, I saw it again with the whole Syrian refugee situation where, you know, these Syrians are displaced. They need to go somewhere. Many states were like, not in my state, not in my state. And you heard a lot of states rejecting it. 
which could maybe be a traditional fearful uh, conservative state saying that. But one of the most conservative states of Utah, led by you, Governor Herbert, you said we'll let him we'll bring him in. Well, I understand that the first and primary role of government is one of keeping us safe. And it shouldn't be a partisan issue. Yeah. You know, public safety is uh, is really the role of government. And the federal government has a role to keep our borders uh, secure and, and safe. And that's been tested in court. So we know what the responsibility of the federal government is. Uh, with the refugee issue, there is a concern that we've had some rhetoric about, let's just keep people from a certain religion, the Muslim right. religion, out. Right. Uh, nobody wants to import terrorists. Right. You know, we want to screen the terrorists out, but we ought not to be screening people based on their religion. That's really anti-American. It's not what this country was founded on. And Utah is a state that probably appreciates that issue more than most because Mormons were discriminated against in the early days of their history. In fact, in 1879, then-President Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, through his uh, Secretary of State, said to Europe, quit sending us Mormons. Stop oh. the immigration of Mormons to, to the United States of America. Keep them in Europe. And, you know, he was ridiculed because of uh, right. on a basis of religion. And uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, but we actually had a, a state and a governor that had what was called the extermination order. They right. said to kill Mormons. So we're probably a little more sympathetic to discrimination based on religious belief than some. And, uh, again, I'm all for let's make sure we have a heightened scrutiny. Uh, I'm working through the National Governors Association, of which I'm the chair, with the White House to make sure that the federal government is doing their part. And here in Utah, we're putting an additional layer of scrutiny with uh, some people that are designed to welcome refugees from Syria or from any other yeah. country that comes here. Uh, there's a lot of ways to get into our country, but we want to welcome them. Uh, invite them to to integrate, to help them uh, so they don't have any uh, hate crimes or anybody giving them trouble and help them assimilate, learn skills. And our refugee program in Utah is really outstandingly good. Uh, um, Thurl Bailey, the former Utah Jazz great, is the ambassador for me for our refugee program. And we, we just need to keep this in the bounds of common sense which I think sometimes with political ideology and political rhetoric, we the first casualty is common sense. We in Utah are taking a very common sense approach to right. refugees. What do you see? Um, one of the things I'm seeing, it seems like this year there's been more tension, you know, with with uh, the gay marriage initiative, with what was going on in Ferguson, with what's going on with the rhetoric coming from the political campaigns. It seems like to- tolerance and acceptance of un- and understanding and caring have gone away, um, or, or, or there, we're struggling with it. So, what would you say, uh, Mrs. Herbert, when you think about parents? What could we be doing as parents to create a more tolerant unit, a family, and a more tolerant community, and a more tolerant tolerant government of others' ideas? Well, and I think you see a lot of anti-bullying campaigns that right. go on now, which I support. You know, uh, we have groups that, that we support together with, with my initiative and, and theirs. And um, we, as parents, or again, it starts in the home. You know, we teach our kids kindness. We teach them acceptance. We teach them, you know, not to judge people. Um, that all has to come from the home. That's where right. they're going to be taught those principles and then, you know, making sure that, you know, when you go to school, how is he being in class? Is he being nice to other kids? Following up on that, you know, parents need to be 
retroactive about certain things with their kids, not just taking their word for things, but, you know, actually looking into that type of situation. Uh, the social media, there again, parents need to make sure that their kids aren't involved in bullying on social media. So much comes back to the parents and comes back to the home yeah. of teaching those principles and living them uh, and, yeah. and living the principles and being the example. And that's the other thing. Parents have to be the number one example for their kids. And so you can't, you know, you, you can't be telling them one thing and doing another. And so it, it's really important. I think if we did more of that and the parents yeah. were more vigilant in that, that we would have a lot more tolerance and everything. But, I, you know, it's just the society today, it really has become so divided. You know, the racial things seem to be getting wider rather than closer right. together. Um it's it's really unfortunate. It's really a sad thing because, you know, it it was interesting. My son went on a cruise. This is just an example. And on this cruise that they had, it was for his business, but they had people from all over. They had people that worked there from oh, every yeah. country, from all over the world. And the last day of the cruise, then they had this program, but they brought all of them up on the stage you know, and they said, look at us. This we are a, from every different thing. That's powerful. We are the best of friends. We love each other. We get along. We have no problems. And yet we're from every different background, society, right. everything. But this shows you what can happen when you bring people together. We learn to, you know, when you learn what they're about, when you get to know someone, then they become friends. Oh, yeah. And that's just a lot of it. You know, we've got to... We can't just shut people out. No. We've got to include them. And understand them better, and, exactly. and then you can appreciate them. Yeah. It's powerful. You know, I, I think our parents taught us this, and our church teaches this, that uh, the fatherhood of God, and most everybody who believes in a religion, has a religious persuasion, believes in, in a heavenly father, a God who we're his children. And if we believe that God is our father, that means the rest of us are all brothers and sisters. So the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man— if we understood that, we would live and treat each other a lot better. Mm -hmm. And that's a principle that we believe, and uh, I think most people in America and around the world actually believe that too. So we need to foster that in our schools. It doesn't have to be a, a specific denomination, but we ought to treat each other like we're brothers and sisters. We're part of humanity here. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the color of our skin is or what our ethnicity is or our religious persuasion or our politics, we ought to treat each other with respect and love and kindness. And the world can be a better place if we'll do that. Start with ourselves. Yeah. We need to change ourselves, become what we want the world to become. If we start there first, the world will become better. Mm. That's it. What else do you need? <laughs> right? I mean, it really is. It's And it's that simple. And uh, we'll, we'll just end it on that. I, I honor you. It's, it's great to have you as our first family because you live it you walk the talk and no one's perfect and you probably would hate to Other be held Jeanette. up well Jeanette, uh, Jeanette is, is perfect no, yeah Jeanette's but, uh, like uh, yeah, I've got she's a, rocking I'm room it. for improvement but uh, <laughs> she told me yeah she told me while you're here she wanted me to work with you a little bit <laughs> yeah. well, pick up you. your I, game I need a lot of help <laughs> Jeanette's amazing and your kids are beautiful and keep up the great work you're, you're actually running you're running for election so that's going to next year. Next, next year, that's year that's going to be, be testing the election yeah. cycle, and so we're governing now, but we'll be running that's next good. year. We've done it before, and so this will be our second uh, four-year term. We'll be trying to convince the people of Utah that uh, we deserve another term. Yeah. And you know, I, I, the state is doing well. We're grateful for that. It's it's certainly not me only. Uh, I have a role to play right. as the kind of the coach of the team, but it's the team. 
And it's the legislature, it's our local government officials, it's our educators, our teachers are doing a phenomenal job. It's the business community. It's just good citizens of Utah. And uh, if we can work together as a team, who knows what we can accomplish oh, yeah. over the next four years. I think it's be something pretty special. Well, and it's fun to have you at the helm, too, and, and to know that your family, and how important that is. And keep up the great work, too, Mrs. Herbert, in family, Uplift Families. That's such a great thing. Thank you. You're changing lives. Well, again, we appreciate uh, Governor Gary and Mrs. Jeanette Herbert. We, you know, we feel blessed to have you. We're going to take a break, come back, and uh, wrap up this show. Um, man, it's good to know that there's good people in, in leadership positions. And I think it's all over the country. It's all over the world, really. We just need to understand the people around us a little bit better. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, hoping to help you find the good in the world. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Hello, welcome to... This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend here, your coach, your guide on the side. Launching you into your holiday season. Feliz Festivus. Happy Festivus. And happy Eve of the Eve of Christmas. Top of the morning. Man, it's snowing like crazy here uh, at the BYU Broadcasting Center in uh, Provo. And I'm telling you, it's because we're going to get snowed in. Nobody believes me, but we're going to get snowed in and we don't have change. For the vending machines. We're not going to get snowed in. We're we fine. Are. The snow has stopped. Oh, has it? We'll no. get out. Okay, let's get the priority here. Uh, talent. <laughs> talent. Who's the first one to get eaten? Or? Top of the pecking order. Oh. Board ops, bottom of the pecking order. Maybe the, we should try and break the glass of the vending machine first. Maybe that should be the lowest of the pecking order. Okay, that's a good point. Let's say the the board ops, they have to break the glass and then bring the host the food. And then I will disperse the food according to the pecking order. I nah. don't like that idea. <laughs> that's a bad idea. Bad idea because you know why? See, that's just so materialistic. Like I'm all I want is I'm going to go get everything I want. I get everything. It's all about me. We got a great guest uh, in just a few minutes. Dr. Tim Kasser will be joining us talking about materialism. And it's important as we get into the holidays, right? You know, you've probably already bought everything you're going to be buying or actually you haven't, but you're about to today and tomorrow. But we got to be careful because materialism, it's not just, you know, it's not just that you're bad because you're materialistic, it impacts you in a variety of ways. And he will be giving us the latest research about what happens to you when you are too caught up in material things. It's a pretty cool little interview we'll be doing. Uh, We'll get to Dr. Tim uh, Kasser in just a minute. And uh, hear this. This is crazy. Uh, The Elf on the Shelf is creating some problems for people. Yes, it's causing 
in a variety of, of situations, variety of yeah. circumstances. We've talked about it. A lot of people don't know about the Elf on the Shelf. Uh, I don't know who you are, but apparently you don't understand that the elf is in the house and it appears on a shelf and it's watching the kids. It's making sure who's naughty or nice. And then it conveys the messages to the home office in the North Pole. And it, a lot of kids are scared because they, they want to be good for the elf. And we then learned that in Boston you can rent an elf on a shelf for a party. There's a uh, a father on Instagram that dressed his little infant up as one of these elves on a shelf and put him on a shelf <laughs> and then had him in all these different situations where the, he's just oh, around cute. the house and doing things. Yeah. So there's an Instagram it's, account. It's taking off. Well, a seven-year-old girl in New Jersey called 911 in a panic when she did something that she thought would get her in trouble with Santa. And Isabel La Peruta contacted cops after she accidentally touched her elf on the shelf. Now, that's an that's, – that's wow. Dead. You're not allowed to touch the elf on the shelf. That is the cardinal sin. When talking to 911 operator, Isabel shouts, don't come to my house. She goes on to explain, I was trying to call my dad to tell him about the accident because she accidentally touched the elf on the shelf. Despite Izzy's pleas, police had to go check out the call. So they show up and they're talking to the girl who was in tears. The girl's mom was upstairs taking a nap and she came down watching Izzy try to shoo the cop away. Just leave. Don't don't worry about it. I didn't want to get into trouble. She said the elf fell onto the floor when she threw a ball. She ended up, I guess, touching the elf. The officer radioed back to headquarters. Isabella apologized. She touched the elf on the shelf, and she won't call 911 again. I'm telling you. It used to be you could get away with stuff like this. There weren't elves on shelves. It was just Santa. <sighs> Do you see the pressure we put our kids under now? Now they have spies watching you. Everything you do. And if you're not good, you're not going to get anything material. So this is now inducing all this materialism. Anyway, oh, cute kid of a little elf on the shelf. That's a really cute picture. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. Um, So we hope you have a happy holiday season, right? But watch out for those elves. And we got to learn how to get to the real spirit of this whole thing. We'll do, um, you know, of course, in the show, we always talk about heroes. We'll do a hero story a little bit later in the show. We're also going to be talking to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. That'll be coming up in a few minutes as well. And you know what else? You got to just give a little shout out to some of these people that really decorate their houses up. Do you decorate your house? No. I have six light bulbs that are red and green, and I put them on my house, and it makes my house look like red and green house. We have a tree in the window. That's it. Yeah. That's There's the a wreath on the door. Understated. I put lights on my parents' house. I'm done. Oh, really? You do it for them? My mom wants the lights. My father doesn't say no. <laughs> but my father can't climb the ladder anymore. Yeah. So that's up to me. Lucky. In the wind. <laughs> trying to get the lights on the house. 
How would you like a neighbor like Dave Rotondo who has 125 inflatable Christmas scenes out in his front yard? 125. Um, no. On maybe, I don't know, a smaller lot of a house, quarter acre or whatever. Yeah, it's not that big. And there are 125. I mean, it really, it looks like a bad Christmas sweater. His entire yard covered in inflatables. 1,000. That's the wattage of the bulb inside the giant 25-foot-tall inflatable Santa that lords over the backyard. So over the top of his house is a Santa Claus. It's like a red velvet beacon. A thousand watt bulb, one hundred. That's the additional amp service Rotondo has to power, uh, has to use to power up his display. In fact, apparently he's still paying for last year's electricity bill. <laughs> so if this guy's your neighbor, do you feel holiday joy, or do you feel like I got to get him? I, I would feel kind of a sense of dread because there's this thing across the street that attracts a lot of traffic to the to the road. How long do you think it takes to set up your yard for that? Ben, what would you say? 20 hours. <laughs> Three weeks. Three weeks. Working full time. It's hard to blow up all those inflatables. <laughs> you all right there, Dave? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm a little winded. A little winded, lightheaded. Apparently, he runs a pool and pond cleaning company, mm. and so his business slows down in December, so he's able to free up time to uh, get all these inflatables in place just in time to make a menagerie of his front yard. <laughs> he, will not, he will not tell you how much his bill is, his, his electricity bill. He won't tell you. But then you'll find him out front handing out candy canes. Like, oh, what hot a, chocolate. Hot chocolate. All kinds of stuff, yeah. I mean, what a great guy. He's got the spirit. It's a little crazy. It's but a yeah. little excessive. He's, he's great. But then, you know, thousands of cars line up. He's got a little radio station you can listen to. Hey, brought to you by Dave's Pool and Pond Service. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's what it Feliz is. Feliz Navidad. <laughs> that's great. Rotondo uh, accepts donations but doesn't charge a dime for any of the treats he offers. He says he can't bring himself to even consider the thought. Dave's on his seventh wife in marriage. I mean, the front of your house, it's like daylight. There's so many lights and bulbs and oh, yeah. things going on. In fact, I think an airplane almost landed on his that could happen. driveway. That could happen. I think I see the airport through the fog. Anyway, every city has one of these houses, right? So shout out to those and, you know. May your days be bright, and may you eventually be able to pay off your power oh. bill. If not this year, next year. Go to their, their uh, electric meter. It's just spinning. It's, not, all <laughs> it's like smoking. Nothing like that. Nothing like paying off your bill for years Yeah, from two Christmases ago or one Christmas ago. That's hard. Anyway, uh, thanks. Thanks, Dave, for being Dave. And again, if you need pool service, check out Dave's Pool and Pond Service. He'll also do decorations on your front lawn if you need it. Let's uh, get to the headlines, find out what else is going on around the world. Terry, what's up? New this morning, Jeb Bush is apparently dropping the high-energy punctuation point from his brand. You know, it says, Jeb! Jeb! Apparently, this is according to Mother Jones, uh, Bush trademarked Jeb with the exclamation point last winter under the name of B. 
B-H-A-G-L-L-C. So BHAG LLC. Some B-Hag. sort of shell company that runs up. Yeah. BHAG stands for Big Hairy Audacious Goal. Yeah. So that's kind of the, 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 the business end of the Bush campaign is a big, hairy, audacious goal. <laughs> but so. it, it, is that going to make a big difference? No, but it's interesting. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office accepted the submission for the trademark and asked for more information, as they, as they are wont to do. But accordingly, that office on November 9th, Bush's application was officially abandoned. Technically, Bush has until January 9th to restart the process, but now... The, but for now, the name was untrademarked and open for anyone else to try and grab. Accordingly, according to the original application, Bush wanted the name reserved for use on leather keychains, stadium cushions, stemware, stuffed toys, hair, bra- hair brands, and other cool stuff. In April, the uh, patent office told the uh, Bush uh, parent company, I guess, within six months, they wanted written consent from Jeb Bush himself to use his name. Hmm. Bush never responded, so the trademark has They've abandoned the process of trademarking his name that he's trying to run for president under. Oh, well. All you had to do is put your name down and say, I want this. Jeb! Without naming names, Hillary Clinton made a jab at Donald Trump on Tuesday saying we shouldn't let anyone bully his way into the presidency. The Democratic frontrunner made her comments at a campaign event in Iowa after a girl in the audience told her she had been bullied. You are looking at somebody who's had a lot of terrible things said about me. It's important to stand up to bullies wherever they are and why we shouldn't let anybody bully his way into the presidency. Donald Trump has denied that the comment about how Hillary Clinton lost to Bush or lost to President Obama in 2008 was vulgar. And he blamed the media for making the situation worse. Hmm. Even though there's really one definition for the word he used, but oh well. <laughs> Army, our Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl deferred entering a plea Tuesday at an arraignment before a judge uh, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Bergdahl reportedly deserted his unit in Afghanistan 2009, and he was held captive by the Taliban for five years. Bergdahl was charged with misbehavior before the enemy and desertion, which carry a life sentence and maximum five year or a life sentence and a maximum five year sentence, respectively. His next hearing scheduled for January 12th. So that's ongoing. As of this month, the IRS can revoke Americans' passports if they are more than $50,000 behind on their taxes. For the average taxpayer, 50000 in back taxes looks like five or six years of non-payment. The actual passport cancellation will come from the State Department, which is responsible for those documents. So stay up on your taxes if wow. you want to travel abroad. Interesting. $50,000, and they'll, they'll take that away from you. <sighs> it has long been said that the English have terrible teeth compared to Americans, but that actually may not be true. <laughs> New research shows Americans do not have better teeth than the English. In fact, their dental health is worse. A study by a team from the U.K. and the U.S. has found that the average number of missing teeth in smiles is slightly higher in the U.S., 73 than in England, 6.9. People are also more likely to have poor dental health because of socioeconomic factors if they live in the U.S. In conclusion, we have shown that the oral health of Americans is not better than the English, and there are consistently wider educational and income-related oral health inequalities in the U.S. compared with England, the study found. So according to the study, the American teeth are... We're not in as great a shape as the teeth in the UK. Yes. However, it's it just appears like the UK has worse teeth. You, you tend to see more people that are identified as English presenters or mm-hmm. English whoever. They're on. You see them. They're from England, and yeah. their teeth are all wonky. They're different directions. <laughs> it's just really odd. You got some wonky teeth. Maybe we just yeah. put prettier people out in front to represent well, the country. Maybe that's it. Is because if the government's paying for your health care. 
you're going to probably have better teeth yeah. than if you're on insurance or whatever. And this really throws a, uh, throws some of the things I have known to be true mm-hmm. completely off kilter because it's supposed to be you're on this island and you're just sort of the same gene pool over and over and you yeah. end up with bad teeth. Well, yeah, you just think all that inbreeding yeah, it's just, doesn't give you snaggle tooth. But, <laughs> but apparently that's just uh, apparently Americans not. hating on know. the English. So what are you going to do? True. I mean, we did win the war. See, we're trying to give you the information. Wait, I so did it again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the only reason they have better teeth than us is because we done helped them in the war. And then they burned the White House down. I know. What is the... I mean, come on, guys. We got to get our... Stories, timing straight. Oh, uh, come on. Oh, come on is right. Okay, we are going to take a break. When we come back, uh, uh, Tim Kasser will be joining us. He uh, is a PhD, and he's going to be talking about what psychology says about materialism. It's important because when we talk about you know creating these materialistic kids, which is so easy to do around the holiday time and the holiday season, there's some watchouts. Uh, it's not just, you know... We don't. It's not just making them selfish. It might also be impacting their happiness. It might impact their ability to deal with other people. It might impact their respect of nature and other things. Stick with us. Learning about the high price of materialism right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. You know, with Christmas just two days away, it's a good time to remember what Christmas is really about. Like the Grinch says, it's not all about the presents and ribbons and boxes and bags. Christmas is more about love, giving, gratitude, strengthening our relationships. We know it's not about materialism, but uh, can being materialistic actually psychologically make you feel the holiday blues rather than holiday cheer? Our next guest, Dr. Tim Kasser, is joining us. He's a professor professor at Knox College, and he has been studying uh, everything you can know about materialism, and he's here today to talk about what psychology says about materialism and the holidays. Dr. Tim Kasser, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me this morning. Great having you. This is, uh, we, it seems like in our gut... We there's a really negative view of materialism, and I, I, I guess I don't know where it comes from. Is it just naturally we know that you shouldn't be too caught up into the things? I think there is that general sense. You know, it's something that we certainly, though, are taught. You know, pretty much every religious and philosophical tradition uh, since the beginning of history has warned against the problems of materialism, whether you look at Buddhism or Confucianism or Christianity, uh, Aristotle and Plato, all of the rest have suggested that there's something kind of awry with regard to focusing your life on money and possessions. But at the same time, of course, we get all these messages from consumer society telling us that that's what's going to make us have a happy, meaningful life. So I think it kind of this so this newer socialization, if you will, sort of throws our intuitive sense and those sort of wisdom teachings um, for a loop some days. Mm. Is it? And psychologists have been studying materialism um, also for years now. What what are you finding out? What does a focus on the things of life 
do to us psychologically? Sure. Well, I would say that there's three main sets of findings that uh, we can be pretty confident about given the research literature. The first and largest set of findings has to do with people's personal well-being. So there are by now a couple of hundred studies that have looked at how materialistic people are, how much they value or care about money and possessions, and other outcomes like uh, their happiness or how depressed they are or what their physical health is or how sort of alive they feel. And what we find over and over again in these studies is that the more that people endorse these materialistic values and goals, the less happy they are, the more depressed they are, the less frequently they feel pleasant emotions, uh, the more headaches and stomach aches and stress-related disorders they report. Mm. So that's the first set of findings. Um, The second set of findings has to do with our interpersonal relationships. So the studies show again over and over that the more that folks focus on materialistic values, the worse their interpersonal relationships, the less satisfied they are in those relationships, the more they kind of tend to treat others in manipulative and competitive ways, uh, and that's never very good for a relationship. And then the third set of outcomes has to do with ecological outcomes, so how the way we treat the planet. And uh, again, what studies have shown is that the more that people focus on these materialistic values, of course, that leads them to do things like uh, buy a lot of stuff and buy stuff they don't really need. And generally speaking, that's not very good for the planet. And that's, again, what we find over and over. Materialistic people care less about the planet and ecological sustainability, and they also have higher ecological footprints. Does it – wow. So it's really it's, – it's people. It's your kind of your well-being, your relationships, and your ecological uh, you know, view. You're, you're taking care of Mother Earth. Yes. And yet we, we keep – perpetuating it, right? It, mm-hmm. Our marketing perpetuates it. There's millions and millions of images that push materialism. seems like there will be a lot of children that will be let down this Christmas because they didn't get everything they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, what What's driving it? Just money? Well, I think money's a huge part of it. You know, I, I would say, obviously, there's something about human nature which makes materialism pretty tempting. That's why all these wisdom traditions have had to Um, warn against it, right? So I think there is something about us as humans which finds stuff really appealing, Um, just like chocolate cake is tasty to most of us. You know, something new to to buy or own is, is psychologically tasty, if you will. But, you know, I think we definitely have to recognize that uh, our economic and political and social structure in a nation like the United States is one that depends uh, largely on consumer spending and depends an awful lot on people going out there and buying a lot of stuff, oftentimes going into debt in order to buy a lot of that stuff because that's one of the things that propels corporate profit, it propels economic growth, it propels tax revenue. And so um, it's sort of a, an aspect of our culture which we need to socialize people into this consumeristic, materialistic mindset, even though while it's good for the economy, it's not too good for people's well-being, their social behavior, or the planet. Oh, that's so interesting to me. Because um, materialism, it, it's it's the market economy, right? We just keep pushing mater- – and, and we need it to survive. We heard when the economy was struggling, we got to get people spending again. We've got to get some cash in their hands so that they can 
spend, but simultaneously you're teaching the more materialistic we're getting, um, we are becoming less maybe happy, more depressed, relationships well, suffer. There is evidence to show that. So, you know, there was a study. I didn't do this one, but Jean Twenge did. And what she did was she studied the materialism of um, youth over about a 30- or 40-year period, so from the 60s until, um, you know, the 2000s or so. And she showed that, um, as many people have, that uh, anxiety and depression levels have been increasing over that period of time. And she was also able to demonstrate that that's accounted for by increasing levels of materialism. So as materialistic uh, values have gone up over time among youth, so has their level of psychopathology. A guy in Norway has found something very similar for um, Norwegians, um, not just youth, but the Norwegian populace as a whole, that um, their, their happiness um, has not gone up. Um, it's gone down some in part because of increases in materialistic values. Wow. Now, are we, and are, are some people born this way? Are some people just more, uh, driven to collect, to, to need to have things? Yeah. Well, there's only one study I'm aware of, which has looked to see whether or not there are um, are genetic effects on materialism. And that study um, found essentially no genetic effects on materialism, which kind of surprised me. It wouldn't, I would have been surprised if it had been 10 or 15 percent, but uh, they found essentially nothing. And so what we know from the research is that there are two other major sources that lead people to become materialistic. Um, the first one is pretty obvious. We call that the modeling pathway. So we know from lots of different research that being exposed to messages in your society, which suggests that materialism is an important value to pursue, leads people to be more materialistic. So if your parents are more materialistic or your friends or you watch a lot of television or you live in a, a nation like America with lots of consumeristic messages, um, that's one pathway towards becoming materialistic. The other less obvious pathway towards materialism is what we call a threat um, pathway. And we know from lots of different studies that when people experience different sorts of psychological threat, that also seems to uh, lead them towards a materialistic pathway. So, for example, um, if you grow up in a family where your parents are kind of cold and controlling instead of warm and nurturing, that's associated with higher levels of materialism. Hmm. Um, if your parents divorce or if you grow up in poverty, that's associated with high levels of materialism. Experiments show that if you get people to think about their own death versus a control topic like pain, Thinking about your own death, which for most people is kind of a threat, um, leads people to be more materialistic, at least temporarily. So those are the two main kind of social uh, environmental factors that the research shows are associated with high levels of materialism. So is this why when we, um, you know, we're down, we're a little depressed, maybe we lost a job or we, mm -hmm. you know, some, we go shopping? Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it. You know, some people go get drunk. Some people have a one-night stand. Some people cut themselves. 
other people go shopping or go on <laughs> eBay, right? Yeah. You know, so what it is is it's kind of a coping strategy that I think people engage in as a way to distract themselves, temporarily soothe themselves, do something that society tells them over and over several thousand times a day is going to make them happier, right? Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm not denying that, you know, it, 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 I mean, it may work for that sort of a distraction, if you will, but so does getting drunk. Okay? <laughs> right. in, the, in the long term, it's not a very um, adaptive or health-promoting strategy around which to organize your life, and that's what the broader literature on materialism suggests. Are there positive aspects of it? I mean, is there a benefit? Is there any positive side of being materialistic? Well, certainly from the economic viewpoint, uh, big corporations like us to be materialistic. Yeah, they love it. Because it, it drives corporate profits, right? Um, and and the, at some, many levels, I think the government also encourages uh, materialism because Profits and consumption and taxes on those are part of what drive economic growth so that we can build roads and um, schools as well as build military machinery and things like that. So, you know, at that broader level, um, the way our economy and government is currently organized, materialism is good for that. I think we have to ask the question of whether that's good for us as a whole, whether it's good for the planet, whether it's good for other peoples we encounter, um, I would be more dubious about that. Yeah. You also brought up that, you know, every major religion, every thought leader has has talked about materialism and tried to confront it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it is ironic that the a very, you know, spiritual-centered holiday has become kind of the iconic material holiday, materialistic holiday. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Jesus would roll over in his grave. <laughs> really? I mean, that's like – and so is there something we can do as parents over the next few days when it's all about consumerism and materialism? What can we be doing to model healthier, uh, healthier view of life and things? You bet. Well, one of the things we know is that materialism is a value, okay? It's something people care about. It's something people think of as being important or not important. And it sits within a broader value system. So it's just one of many values which people might hold. And we know from the research that these materialistic values for money and status and fame and image and such stand in opposition to another set of values. And we call those the intrinsic values. Um, Intrinsic values are values for like personal growth and pursuing your own interests, values for close relationships, and values for helping the community. And there's some really fascinating research which has emerged over the last five or six years which shows that intrinsic values and the materialistic values are kind of like a seesaw. They stand in like a dynamic tension with each other. So as people focus on the materialistic values, the intrinsic values tend to go down. But as people focus on the intrinsic values, the materialistic values tend to go down. And so one of the things that um, I've been arguing for a lot of years now is that what we need to do at Christmas time the rest of the year in our businesses, in our educational institutions, in our society writ large, is to figure out ways to organize our lives and our communities and our government 
um, around these intrinsic values. And we know that from the research that intrinsic values tend to make people happier. They tend to make people treat others more nicely, and they tend to make people um, live in more ecologically sustainable ways. So to me, the real answer, you know, for how to do this at Christmas is to ask yourself, you know, as a parent or just as a person, is how I'm spending my time really a reflection of materialistic values or is it reflection of intrinsic values? Mm. Is it, are the gifts I'm giving reflection of just sort of empty consumerism or are they reflections of what this person really needs? You know, so for an example I often give is that um, in, in our household what, what, we, uh, what we do, I mean, we give some material gifts, don't sure. get me wrong. Yeah. But we, um, since our kids have been little, and, and with me and my wife, we uh, give coupons where, you know, a couple of years ago, not for Christmas, but for Mother's Day, I gave my wife a um, coupon where I took over basically one of her least favorite chores. Um, that was the only gift I gave her. Hmm. And, I, and, uh, and now I do that chore all the time for her. With my kids, uh, when they were really little, like, you know, three or so, we give them coupons where they could skip their vegetables and still get a dessert or where we would, you know, little kids make a lot of messes and uh, where we would give them a coupon where they, you know, they could play all they want and then they would give us the coupon and we would pick up the puzzle and the blocks and all the stuff that they had left yeah. on the floor. You know, as they got older, we've, we've given them other kinds of, of coupons, you know, for our time or for for um, things that we know that they particularly want or don't want, right? And we say, you don't have to do this thing you don't want to do. So, you know, it's always easier to go out to Walmart and just buy some piece of plastic thing right, mm -hmm. and give it to them. Um, and it's better for the economy. But, you know, a, a, a really thoughtful gift entails wondering, what is it that this person really needs? How can I really express my understanding and love of that person. And I think that's oftentimes not through something material. Yeah, no, I love that. And especially because right now, myself included, there's a bunch of people that are behind the eight ball now. <laughs> and they're thinking, ah, oh, geez, I yeah. should have bought something weeks ago. But maybe what we need to be thinking is what does, my, what does this person really value? What do they need? And how can I serve that, serve them? Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, again, when my kids were really little – um, you know, my wife and I took turns to get up in the early morning with them when they were awake. Um, and, and once I gave them, I gave my wife a coupon where on days when it was her turn, she could give me the coupon and I'd get up instead. And, you know, trust me, it would have been way easier to buy her a pair of earrings. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. You know, but, but I gave her what she needed then. I gave her what, you know, really was going to help her life at that particular juncture, which was another hour of sleep, basically, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think, you know, consumerism makes it easy to think, oh, I'll just buy some earrings, you know. And, and I think it's these kinds of gifts which, which really show love. You know, and I think gifts where we, you know, give outside of our family, too. So um, we have a tradition in my more extended family where we give gifts of donations to charities that we think that person cares about. So I'm giving my sister-in-law um, a donation to a humane society that basically does operations huh. on, um, you know, animals that probably would die if they didn't get those operations. 
because she she's a total she cares about that. person. That's what she cares about. Exactly. That's what she cares about. You know, it's not my number one. I think it's important, but it's not the main thing I give to. Right. Yeah. But it's what the what, you know, she cares about. And so and, and you know, she doesn't need some other Mm-mm you know, coffee mug. Or yeah, right. That'll then be just thrown away or broken. or And I, and I guess that's really the, the, the point, uh, Tim, and we appreciate you teaching us this, is it's intrinsic stuff. It's the service. It's the gift giving. It's the giving, not the gift. It's the service, not, uh, not you know, what you buy. It's those intrinsic things that really make a difference. And uh, we appreciate you. Again, Dr. Tim Kasser uh, here to teach us everything we need to know. Um, you can go find more out about his work by visiting his articles on newswise.com. And um, and all of us, let's just take some, some of that very basic advice. Your happiness is going to come from your intrinsic values, not the things that we get this holiday season. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Folks, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Santa Claus is coming to town. And uh, let's go uh, talk to a few of his elves that are on shelves down at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Hello. <laughs> How are, are you? Are you referring to, to me because I'm short? N- n- no. No, I wasn't. Good answer. Good answer. You guys, Santa Claus is coming to town. I know. This is so exciting. Let's hear it. Let's hear it, Bri. What are you getting for Christmas, I Matt? I am <laughs> so excited. Oh, you're not. You're a Scrooge. I'm getting, um, I don't think I'm getting anything. That's why I'm not excited because I'm not getting anything. I, I think Santa thinks I've been a bad boy. Hmm. Or Urgh. maybe you're just old because now that I'm old, I don't get anything. Rude. That was rude. I didn't mean it like in a bad way. I'm just saying. A good old. Stop. Yeah, yeah. Well, neither. Uh, once you <laughs> once you reach a certain age, you just don't get presents. That's true. That's so. so true. You just yeah. you're just a giver. You just yeah, give, ex- give, exactly. give, 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 give. It's yeah. it's also weirder when your children are older. Like you guys have these cute little babies, but your yours is uh, how old is your baby, Brian? Um, he is a week old. Okay. Well, the, oh, and then One you have a week. Oh my yeah. goodness, that's I'm, right. I'm, well, we can have that's your gift right there. Yeah, exactly. The gift of life and the gift of no sleep. Uh, yeah, I my wife does a good job. Oh, that's... <laughs> wait, you're one. Of, are you lucky? I am blessed, man. I don't, Do you never have to wake up I or get bl- up. I don't believe in luck. I believe uh, I'm I'm blessed. I don't. I wouldn't say never, but it's n- it's not like she doesn't nudge me and say, hey. Um, below get up and make a bottle or anything like that so i'm I'm pretty blessed uh, when i when i when i'm up and i have an opportunity i try that's good try oh i'm getting nudged all the time man <laughs> you know what get though up, lazy not to brag i got up every time Ooh, and yeah. then i would just i'd get the baby i'd bring it the baby to my wife and then i would just stand there watching <laughs> because that's all you can do <laughs> yeah with this glazed look on my face <laughs> like now what yeah, now well, what am okay, I doing? Well, I, I picked up the baby, and what I do now? 
Go you, back to sleep. You guys, this is this is a big deal. I'm proud of you. And you're going to be working, though, too. That's kind of sad. Uh, yeah, I'll be working at Spencer. Spencer will be on vacation. Oh. Actually, yeah. He'll, he'll be working, actually. Too bad I for forgot. You. Yes, I will, Brian. I forgot the the work. You know, I, I'm not going to be working. I'll just be. I just want you to think about me. I'll be wearing my jammies, watching movies. I will not be thinking about you in your pajamas. That is a guarantee. Oh, you should see him. I'll be thinking about. I'm gonna when I put my jammies on. I'm gonna think about you and <laughs> Brian. Maybe stop you should it. tweet it out or something. Yeah. Oh no. Picture. Oh yeah. I just want to see. I'm. I'm gonna come real. Real. Uh, fashionable this this christmas um yeah me i'm gonna actually get my, my wife probably not listening because she hasn't texted me back yet yeah. um but she's... i'm gonna get us some matching pajamas oh cute for, for christmas so i i'm gonna yeah take a picture of that out. yeah i'll tweet it out tweet uh, that out sure that it's it's you know uh really trendy and i'm gonna make sure that we both have some swag yeah. so i'll be thinking <laughs> if you have swag yeah 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 hey is you your, know what is your pjs better than our pjs right? oh, yeah. you like trendy things Yes. He's a total trendy dude. Mm-hmm. In fact, facetious. Let, let me ask you this, guys. <laughs> Would you ever change your name to Darth Vader? Oh, real no. fast. Nope. A guy, a, a guy did that. A guy in western New York legally changed his name to Darth Vader. He's a 43-year-old former Marine. Can, oh, yeah. Can't you just see him at, like, the DMV? Totally Mr. Bad. Vader? Darth Vader. He like, if he's like buff and like kind of intimidating, then I'm, I'm all for it. Well, if I'm be- if like, I'm a betting man, he's not all buff. See, if he is like just this scrawny like yeah. five six twig, then I would laugh at him. Can you call me Lord Vader, There's please? There's got to be a picture of this guy <laughs> right, somewhere, Lord right? Vader. Yeah, we're gonna find him. First name Lord, last name Vader. <laughs> Someday he's gonna have a son. Um, is there a Jimmy Vader here? Jimmy. <laughs> Actually, that would be Luke. Uh, that's Luke. Yeah, I would never do that. I think it would take a lot to get me to to do that. What uh what's are you guys going to do your show today? No. And, and, I mean, it's nope. almost like are you not running out of things to to talk about? Are you kidding me? No. Yes. We are at a peak right now. Are you peaking? Okay. What yeah. what are we going to take a peek at? <laughs> Have you heard <laughs> of one Ty Detmer? <gasps> are you kidding? Is this going to happen? Have you heard of him yes. before? Yes. Yes. Well, the rumor mill is going nuts right now that Ty Detmer is going to coach at BYU next year under Kalani Satake in some capacity. You're kidding me. This is not a joke. But wouldn't he have to be like the offensive coordinator? Who knows? That's Who knows? huge. Coach the That's why I say in some capacity on the offensive side of the ball, it is now rumored. And I'm seeing lots of reports and tweets from people like, hey, Ty, great to have you on the staff. Man. But it's yeah. not official. So, we will discuss that. Among other things, who else has been rumored to come in? I mean, at this point, that's what it is. It's all rumors. That's what it is. I hear it's Andy Reid and Kyle Whittingham. <laughs> Am I off on that? Well, yeah, that's the Steve Harvey moment. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's Steve a Steve Harvey, Harvey moment. Do not pull Poor the Steve, Steve Harvey. Harvey comment. Poor Steve Harvey. <laughs> Cool. I still like him. I he love. Still goes out to him. He's been awesome in a lot of different settings. Yeah, yeah. I, he changed Family Feud for me. Yeah, definitely. I I watch it when it's on. I couldn't I'm I, flipping through the channels. I couldn't. I don't go seeking for it though. Yeah, I couldn't. I didn't used to like it. Now I can't stop watching it. Hmm. I said facetiously. 
Hey, um, what, uh, anything else on the show? So you're going to talk about that. Of course we're going to talk about that. Also, yes, Anson Winder on the show. He has become a significant contributor to uh, BYU Sports Nation on the basketball front. He starred for the Cougars last year, and now he is starring as an analyst cool. in Studio B. He's going to try and explain to us what's happening with BYU. They lost to Harvard yesterday, a game that uh, they had plenty of opportunities to win. In fact, <sighs> yeah, that's one of those games you look back and say, I cannot believe BYU lost that game. To those really smart guys, too. Harvard, Harvard yeah is a decent program. They'll win the Ivy League again, like there but BYU still needs to win that game. Why didn't they? Anton Weiner gonna tell us about that. Also, our gifts. If if Brian and I could pick one gift to give to a BYU coach or player or athletic program, what would it be over this Christmas holiday? You know what mine would be? Uh National Championship No. Oh The gift of love. Oh, peace on love earth. Is, love is all we need. You Goodwill would do toward that. men. You would do that, mm. doctor. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I just, I felt that. I felt. That do you feel it? Spirit. I do. I oh. felt it, man. I'm just trying to bring it the came spirit through your mic to my ear, but oh, yeah, to my spirit. Yeah, we call that radio, Brian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> isn't that neat, Brian? Isn't that a neat thing? Isn't that neato? It's, am- it's amazing. You guys are great. You're going to have a great time. I would suggest that you send one of your team out to shovel the walks because none of your people are getting in. Okay. Just, we'll, just we'll, uh, we'll take care of that. Yeah. Just get we'll on that. We'll take care of that. If not, I got Ben. Ben will be free in about six minutes. Okay. Ben's got nothing but time. Nothing but time. Hey, I, I actually have something, you, so. Yeah. Oh, I'll, ben, okay. I'll send Ben down there. And then um, happy holidays. Yes. And, you know, stay incredible. You took the words out of my mouth. I said that I had a couple of things for you, and those were the things that I was going to say to you. Man, you guys. Happy holidays and stay incredible. I, I, I feel so blessed to know both of you. And bless your children, and, you know, may the force be with you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Thanks, guys. Take care. That's crazy. That's cool. Man, what if Ty Detmer came? I was thinking he was a backup quarterback in the pros for like 12 years. I can't remember how long. But he sat there, and he had to have learned every offense in the world. And he just studied, I'm sure. I don't know what else you do when you're a backup quarterback. You study. You don't work out. You just study. I'm sure he worked out. That makes it sound like he's all lazy. Hey, uh, it is Festivus. So happy Festivus to those of you that are trying to not get caught up in the world and the commercial side of Christmas. By the way, commercial side, listen to this. You know what it took to get Han Solo, Harrison Ford back in the game? To get Han Solo out of retirement to come do The Force Awakens, they had to pay uh, Harrison Ford, according to Esquire uh, magazine, um, they had to pay him 10 to $20 million. It's a trap. It's a total trap. 10 to $20 million. I would have done it for five. Would have done it for five mil. Nobody asked. Kind of rude that way. Also, uh, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill, nobody knows the numbers, but they're rumored to have paid uh, about, they had paydays of about seven figures, low seven figures. But that's, you know, that's a lot. So this movie, just getting Harrison Ford in the movie, ton of, ton of cash. That's why they've got to have such a great opening. Um, You may have also heard about the bank robber who um, writes on a demand letter, a demand note when he's, you know, holding up a teller at a bank in Georgia. He demanded cash and he wished the teller a Merry Christmas. 
Gwinnett County Police said in a news release that they are looking for a man who entered a BB&T bank in Buford on Monday and handed the teller a note requesting money. At the end of the note, the suspect had handwritten, Merry Christmas. Well, you don't need to be rude about it. No. I mean, if you're going to stick someone up, be nice. Yeah, do it. Be courteous. Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and Feliz Festivus. That's the least you can do. And I'd just add, may the force be with you. Police say the robber got away with a small amount of cash, but uh, I'm sure he's on Santa's naughty list. So he may thought he got away, but he didn't really get away. He didn't. He didn't get away with it all. As you know, we also like to end with our hero story. Here's our hero of the day. Pretty cool story. Catherine Slover is her name. She was sitting in her car with her husband when she noticed something that wasn't quite right. The underwater cable that guides the ferry across the Potomac River between Maryland and River or Virginia had snapped, and the ferry took a hard right and began floating down the river. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? 49-year-old Kathleen Slover jumped out of her car and started running along the riverbank while passengers looked on and the captain screamed frantically for help. With instructions and ropes from the captain, Slover secured the ferry to several trees before it was able to float off toward Washington. Twelve cars, 20 people were aboard the ferry, but thankfully nobody was injured. Slover says the whole experience was exciting. The fast-moving current nearly swung the front of the boat around, and Slover barely got the rope around the tree in time. Her hands were shaking, she said. A spokesman for the fire department said, We've got to get her an application and have her come work for us, fire department said. For the passengers on the boat that day, I guess you could say Catherine, Catherine Slover was their fairy godmother. Again, another hero, folks. Another hero. We're, the world's filled with them. You're all heroes when it comes right down to it. It's just life. We're trying to make it through together. And this holiday season, can I just challenge us all to get out there, lose ourselves. Don't get so consumed in the materialism. Remember the real principles behind it. The giving, the caring, the loving, the serving. Don't get caught up in the things. It's just, you're just going to get stuck. Instead, remember the people, the relationships, Forgive quickly, forget, move on, and let's prepare for a great next year. That's the show, folks. Again, go check out uh, the BYU radio app, and you can download all of our old shows. It's a wonderful thing to put on all your new devices. Uh, Those apps are incredible. Also, you can find us on iTunes and TuneIn. You can go to the uh, matttownsend.com website or look us up on Facebook. That's the show, friends. We'll be back uh, after the new year. We'll be playing repeat shows during the break, though, so stick with us until next year. Have a good one. Watch out for each other's backs, and we'll talk again next year.